So, Jim, you touch on this some in Platoon Leader, but what what are your thoughts on the Army's individual replacement system in Vietnam? Well, it's not ideal, but on the other hand, when you're having a long war, uh, it's probably understandable. Very difficult to rotate whole units in and out. If you look back at the Vietnam years, uh, the Army and Marine Corps had uh, committed a major percentage, I mean, a major, major percentage of its force into that war. I can speak for the Army. Remember, we had a Cold War mission in Europe, and we had really stripped that then. We had all sorts of worldwide contingencies. Essentially, we had stripped ourselves back to one ready active Army uh, division, and even that got stripped down. That was being the 82nd Airborne. Uh, after a while, committed one third of itself, a brigade, into Vietnam. So we had very little reserves left. And the idea of rotating whole units in and out probably wouldn't have worked. At our peak, we were over 500,000 in Vietnam. That's a, a large chunk, even though we expanded the base. We could have mobilized the reserves National Guard, but that's a political decision. We elected not to do so. But the drawbacks of the individual replacement were there. You have essentially, particularly after the first year when you've attrited quite a few, a first year of service, which was the term of service for soldiers in Vietnam. So let's say you had a unit that stayed pretty much intact. Suddenly their 12 months were up. Essentially, you were bringing in strangers that had not worked together before. Over time, though, that sort of evened itself out. There was such an attrition, particularly with frontline combat units those that were seeing action, in my case, uh, virtually on a daily basis. The attrition was so steady that there was a constant inflow, a constant outflow, sadly on the outflow. Uh, but you always had enough of, a, uh, of an existing unit that SOPs were established. Uh, you had pretty much uh, pretty solid NCOs that had been developed over time by the consistent combat, and they could assimilate new soldiers quite quickly. They could bring them in, teach them the basics, tell them what to expect, check them out, uh, make judgments on them, give them the right missions, the right weapon, if they were transferable. Usually they were, with some exceptions. So uh, it worked, but ideally, we as military professionals like to do what we did in World War II which is uh, after a unit had it exhausted itself fighting and suffered a lot of casualties, you'd rotate them out of a line, bring in a fresh unit, rest up the one, train them again, up-train them with uh, the replacements in already, and then get them back in the line. We did the best we could, given the political decisions that we made, which is not to activate reserves, National Guard. And Jim, there's, there's another, I guess, aspect to the story, and that's the policy to have officers serve, and correct me if I'm wrong, serve six months in an operational unit, a frontline unit. And this is particularly true for like, lieutenants and captains, and then either what, another six months or seven months as uh, a staff officer or in the rear. First of all, is that accurate? And, and if so, could you roughly, talk about the effects? Yeah. yeah. Uh, to answer your question, roughly it is accurate, certainly true in my case. Uh, but uh, in most cases, officers did both jobs. Some, uh, however, were able to get themselves back into the field. They'd have to sort of work the system or work through the system to make that happen, but it could happen. So it has drawbacks as well. The first one is a lack of example. The soldiers are on the field for 12 months, Marine Corps 13 months, and then suddenly see the officer come in and rotate out. Sometimes they were happy to see him go, (laughs) 
<clears throat> but sometimes they'd say, well, that guy had just learned the ropes and he's out of here. Right. And now we got to break in a new guy. We don't know who he's going to be or what he's going to be like. So there is that example. And of course, the big example is how come I'm here for 13 months getting shot at, but he is relatively safe. I mean, they, there was no place in Vietnam that was fully safe, but there's a big difference between being in a secure base area or even further back and out on the line every day patrolling and, sure. and inserting you know, and doing all of that. So, but the other thing that you had to keep in mind, you're trying to develop your officers for the long haul. Uh, you want them to understand that both jobs are important. It's not like when you go to the rear, say in Vietnam, that suddenly things were posh. You know, you worked an eight hour day, you got your hair cut in the shower, right. uh, you got a good night's sleep, you know, you wrote letters home or even called on a, we had a Mars radio system, uh, shortwave, you could do that. Uh, they work pretty hard, they, deciding uh, where to insert, how to insert, lining up the support, making decisions and forming the uh, chain of command, best courses of action. That can be pretty harrowing work. And often you'd see people in the rear get committed mm -hmm. all of a sudden. I will tell you, uh, as I was an aide to the commanding general of the 173rd Airborne, the one-star general, that guy had been wounded badly in action, uh, shot right through the chest. I don't know how he survived that in an earlier commitment in Vietnam, and then also right through the arm, which had broken his, his upper arm bone badly. But he was still out there. He eventually served five years, I think, total in Vietnam. Mm. Uh, and with him, I can remember... Uh, I'll give you one particular day that stands out. Overnight, there'd been some action against a number of Army of Vietnam bases in our area of operations, his area of operations. And based on the intelligence he had, he decided he had to go out and see for himself. Well, the first place we went into, uh, everyone was dead. There were no friendlies on the ground at all. And heli it was just our helicopter. So we come in thinking there are survivors there. Last report there were. There's nobody there. Wow. Uh, the dead, kind of eerie. In fact, the, uh, oh, there were living people. They were the widows of the Vietnamese soldiers that had come in after the battle and were grieving. Very sad scene. The second place was just about as bad, very little security. The third place we went into, we should have stopped, I think, at the second. Mm. The third place we uh, pulled into, we're coming down. The enemy is, is occupying, and we are, we're coming in for, at a hover, and suddenly enemies spring up, and uh, I have this vision of what then action. I I was focused on uh, two North Vietnamese, oh, wow. two North Vietnamese, and they're grabbing a mortar and they're trying to shoot the helicopter down. Which is, I mean, it wasn't quite. You could jump up and touch it, but we are close. Sure. And they are trying to turn this mortar to get the mortar round through the helicopter. Oh, gosh. And our uh, our wonderful helicopter pilot, whose name, by the way, was Charlie Brown, his actual name. And Charlie Brown is jinking that helicopter. I don't know how he kept it in the air. And there you got, you know, when you move a mortar, you got one guy trying to drop the round down the tube. The other guy trying to, usually the mortar is set. In this case, the guy's trying to aim the tube and we keep jinking out of the way. So those things could happen with staff officers very suddenly. Tell the truth, I'd rather be with a... Uh, fixed combat union that knows what it's doing yeah. than to go out there with guys that have an occasional uh, contact. 
Wow. That, that's, that's illuminating. And it serves as a good segue to a question I wanted to ask. And that was, you've already given us some sense. It sounds like it certainly wasn't uneventful or boring, but as the aide to the commanding general of the 173rd, what was your experience like? And what did you take away from it? What insights, aha moments, what have you, did you bring with you through the rest of your career, if, if any? Well, for me, it was my first exposure to higher level headquarters. Now, most people say, most armchair generals say, well, brigade's not very hot, high level. When you're a lieutenant, it's high level. <laughs> high and enough. Work, right? for, work for the, uh, the general in command, you get to see everything. So you see how the intelligence is developed. You see how the operations are planned. You see how the supplies have to marry up with the maneuver of the unit. Uh, you see uh, your own immediate commander's role in a chain of command that goes higher and higher. <clears throat> you hear the, uh, the confusion. It was my job often to make sure his communications were good. So in the helicopter, I'm working the radios uh, on the ground in the uh, tactical operations center. I, again, I'm, I'm not working the radios. There's more people there to do that but I am the insurer that the communications are clear and the general is hearing what he needs to hear. Probably older Sola as terms of what the aide does. A lot of people work in that, but I'm seeing it and I'm conscientious that I got to help make sure the general has got a clear picture here on it. So it's educational for a guy like me to see what works, what's a good idea, what's not a good idea, to see leadership styles, you see a lot of that, not only in your own superior, the one you're working for, but the others around him, how a staff is, is, is coordinated, and how if it's not properly done, there's death in the air. I mean, you make a mistake and uh, the consequences uh, could be fatal, often are. Sure. So you've got to get it right. It's a good education in a brutal area. Mm-hmm. You know, in different parts of platoon leader, you describe the the crucial role and responsibility of this small unit leader on the spot. As you know and may have experienced, Vietnam had its its helicopter colonels. Today, we see colonels and generals extending their reach, their presence, you know, their their command through UAVs, long range cameras, other types of technology. The ease with which higher headquarters can direct and and influence a squatter platoon today has has grown to men- tremendously, and some would say dangerously. What's your reaction to, to all of that? It's fraught with risk. The risk being that uh, there'll be over control without a clear picture of what's happening. Now, remember, I'm dated. Technology is so advanced that when you get a drone overhead and you're seeing things much more clearly than even a person on the ground is, it might be helpful. But my experiences were, and this lasted through much of my army career, which extended actively till 1996, that there is a danger that an otherwise not over-occupied commander or senior officer might try to take control of a minor tactical event, uh, which diverts, of course, right away the attention from the larger issue. Now, let me uh, put in a a caveat in that. A lot of the special ops stuff that we do, which has been the dominant form of combat in recent years and with the American military, it's become so efficient, so capable, it's like a machine. And uh, it's not unheard of for a four-star general somewhere to be observing, let's say, a midnight raid. So you're going to get Osama bin Laden. You've got a lot of people 
watching that or standing by to include probably the president of the United States. A mission like that, you want finite control, <clears throat> but that means that they're not preoccupied. Let me talk about military people. Senior military people are not preoccupied with bigger issues. If you get back to the conventional war picture, the big wars, as opposed to a special ops operation, they senior officers have so much to think about. Mm -hmm. Times have not changed that much from when Napoleon was conquering Europe and trying to hold on to his empire. You get over-focused as a senior commander on a company level or battalion, even brigade level, you're probably missing something else that might be much more important. Mm. So uh, it behooves the commander that's got that capability to keep himself or herself in balance and say, where do I spend my attention? Where do I spend my thinking? How do I direct my staff to spend their time in thinking? And uh, overseeing minor operations might be exciting, interesting, but the wrong thing to focus on. Mm. With the aid of, of hindsight, is there anything differently you would have done in preparing for your time in Vietnam? And I, I'm almost, you know, I'm, I'm unsure of asking you this question because having read Pl Platoon Leader a few times, you had quite a bit of training up to going to Vietnam. So I, I, I do wonder what more could you do, but, you know, feel free to answer that. Or um, if, you know, there are things you would have done differently, again, with the aid of hindsight as a platoon commander in country. Well, you're, you're correct in saying uh, the army had prepared me over an extended period of time, not only the four years at West Point, with a lot of tactical training and exposures. I mean, two years before I graduated, I served in Hawaii with a unit on the way to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, there I am as a cadet, and I'm actually a platoon leader for a month in an active army unit that's on the way to Vietnam. They went in and saw a lot of action uh, right away. And then when I graduated, I mean, you get all these schools at you. They, we call them schools, but they're visceral experiences. Uh, you go to airborne school, jump uh, master school, the infantry officers, basic course, ranger school, jungle warfare school. Right, right. You know, by the time I'd got there, I had five years of prep. A lot of, uh, and I mean field prep, experiences, tactical training, but also a lot of study about war and thinking about war, a lot of examples to see from officers I'd come in contact with, NCOs I'd come in contact with. But having said all that, uh, my observation is nothing quite prepares you for the shock of war. Mm. Uh, it's all theoretical until you're actually engaged and bullets are flying and, and you see people getting hit and you've got to kill. I don't know what can pre prepare you for things like that. I think uh, if everyone that had served in combat got the background I have, then uh, the army would have done a fantastic job. They don't have the resources to, to do that. I mean, we were drafting 18-year-olds. Two of my soldiers turned out to be 17. They shouldn't have been there. Wow. <clears throat> they probably lied about their age, but and I never checked the records, but they were 17. Yeah. And they, you know, they were uh, just a short distance from their mother's arms. Mm -hmm. And here they are in combat. In your view, and, and this is uh this is I think one of those million dollar questions. Could we have won the war in, in Vietnam? I know it's a, you know, it's a retrospective or a counterfactual, but 
um, do you think we, we, we could have done it? Uh, the short answer is uh, no, not with uh, expanding the war to something that was out of control or almost out of control. We probably had, we, I mean, we certainly could have invaded North Vietnam, but they would have fought to the end. I should point out there was an expert around at the time named Douglas Pike, wrote extensively on Vietnam. His, you ask him the question, he would say point blank, no, we never could have won because they never would have quit fighting. They'd already been fighting for 400 years. Mm -hmm. But uh, to answer your question, from my perspective, we could have drubbed them into submission with guerrilla war going on in North Vietnam. But by the time we had done that, I think China would have entered the war because we are now encroaching close to the Chinese borders. By the way, there's not a lot of love lost between the Chinese and the Vietnamese, but the Chinese are xenophobic and they would have entered. Uh, whether or not it would have escalated uh, even beyond that, I don't know, but we didn't want to repeat it the, the, the Korean War. So under the policy decisions we made to contain the war to Vietnam and Sub Rosa extend into Laos and Cambodia, uh, which eventually became obvious. And certainly uh, by not going into Vietnam, we'd still be there, we'd still be fighting, we'd still be suffering heavy casualties. Mm -hmm. Not a question of attrition. Uh, I do believe the uh, strategy of attrition that was adopted for years by uh, General Westmoreland, for example, was certainly not going to get us anywhere good. And the pacification of the countryside we tried, 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 and failed. So back to my short answer, no, we could yeah. not have. How did your Vietnam War experiences affect how you led your infantry company? You So I think you had an infantry company, a Bradley Battalion, an Airborne Brigade. Put another way, how did your Vietnam experiences influence the, the rest of your commands? Well, uh, I learned a lot of lessons in Vietnam the hard way. You learn by the things you do wrong as well as by the things you do right. You have to hope that if you make a terrible mistake, and I made a couple of terrible mistakes, that you never make them again. You only make them one. We can talk about some of those mistakes. So I wanted to make sure I was as professional as I could be. I want to make sure that I valued the lives and well-being of any soldiers that I was in command of or in charge of dearly. I didn't expend their life, their worth cheaply. So, and it also told me a reminder, which I did learn in Vietnam. And, and I knew by my training before I got there, as well as the example of my father, who was a non-commissioned officer for 22 years, that uh, never ask a soldier to do something you wouldn't do yourself. So these lessons uh, learned again and again in Vietnam stayed with me. I also learned that you owe it to your soldiers to keep them well-trained and keep standards very high. So I was probably viewed from Vietnam on as a hard commander, a hard driving commander. But I tried to temper that by never being hard driving for personal fame or reputation or notice. <clears throat> but I learned again in Vietnam, you can kill soldiers with kindness and attempt to go too easy to give them a break to uh, let them rest more than you can afford to let them rest could be the worst thing you do for them. One idiosyncratic thing that I look back, I, <clears throat> I was always very hard on this. It became vogue, and I still hear it sometimes in military jargon, to say, hey, we need some bodies over there. 
I want you to send uh, 15 bodies over there. And they may, they're talking about your soldiers. And my comeback to that, even to uh, seniors, was, or I would prefer you not call them bodies. I learned if you refer to soldiers as bodies, they often become bodies. Mm. Kind of alarming to hear that. In my own units, that was, uh, that was ver- verboten. You didn't say that, or the commander would say, knock that off. They're not bodies, they're human beings, they're just like you. I don't want to make that the central point of the answer to your question, but you really have to keep valuing a soldier as a living, contributing human being that deserved a life in one piece. And you had to work hard to make sure you did that. It also taught me to learn the profession. Don't be an amateur about it. Don't dabble in this, dabble in that. Understand what the military is all about. Later on, the Army put that to use. They gave me a good education after Vietnam, too, the Army did. But they also had me get into the uh, writing of doctrine, for example, our central warfighting doctrine. And my time was uh, Field Manual 100-5, operations. So there came a point in my career that I drafted that for the Army. It's like like the Army's Bible. I always reflect the two great institutions that live by their doctrine, one, the church, and two, the military. And if you get to the American Armed Forces, the two services that certainly live by their doctrine is the U.S. Army and U.S. Marine Corps. It's not to be violated, and for good reason. Jim, you mentioned some of the mistakes that that you had made while you were a platoon leader in in Vietnam. Could you share one or two of those? The one that bothers me the most has to do with this idea of kindness. In the book, Platoon Leader, it appears in a chapter entitled Day at the Beach. Uh, We'd been in constant contact with the enemy. We'd been through the monsoons. We'd been through blistering heat. We were treated down. You know, the the table of organization and equipment for a platoon in those days was 47, counting the officer. Uh, We averaged, uh, because of attrition, about 22, 21 soldiers. So instead of having a 10-man squad, 12-man squad or 10-man squad and uh, mortar team, whatever, we generally were operating with six-man squads and then the three-man platoon headquarters, the platoon sergeant, platoon leader, and the RTO. To come to your point, I decided since we were within three clicks of the beach, the ocean, that and some of my soldiers had developed these severe sores. When you work in that sort of heat, carrying, even if you're not carrying a ruck, just carrying your basic load on your load-bearing equipment. That stuff is always rubbing on you, you're sweating. You always wore a flak jacket. Anyway, the crud begins to blister you and then it begins to get infected. So we had soldiers that had significant sores on them. They referred to as jungle sores, but we didn't work in the jungle, we were on the coastal plain, but you still have sores. So my thinking went like this. There's not uh, no places the enemy can ambush up at the, at the beach. It's wide open. Uh, I need to get a couple of guys there to uh, get in the salt water. Uh, the, the medics had done their job, but it wasn't working. But something to ease that suffering and help them relax. And I sent a squad with careful instructions how to guard against the enemy off to the beach. What I didn't uh, remind them to guard against 
was the undertow of the ocean. And within a matter of minutes of two of the soldiers stepping into the surf, while others secured them, they were sucked out to sea and drowned. So uh, my decision to send them, my uh, preparation for it, that was a terrible, terrible mistake. And I hope never to repeat anything like that again in my life and worked hard never to repeat anything like that in Vietnam while I was there. So not just in the military, but with all things. That doesn't make me super cautious, but as a reminder, think through the consequences of what you're about to embark on. Think about it and make sure you take precautions against all risk. Uh, that's the standout. There were other things here and there. I got super keyed on a mission one time that brought us through a village. We'd been in a pretty steady fighting mode for virtually 24 hours. We'd lost a couple of men, we'd done some killing, and we come through a village, and uh, it's civilians in the village. These are uh, like Vietnam used to be, uh, they were essentially grass huts or bam bamboo huts. And uh, no roads, of course, just dirt. And as we come in, there's a uh, teenager, not quite a man, but you know, not quite a boy either. And he's standing by an urn and uh, we're trying to make sure the place is booby trap. Enemy isn't there, we're in pursuit, so they could be there. And uh, he lurches uh, towards an urn that he uh, is standing next to. If I'd uh, watch closely, he was actually leaning on. And uh, I believe he's going in to pull a weapon out. I'm so close to him that the fastest thing I can do is whip the barrel of my M16 around and I knock him down and then I stand over him and I'm ready to kill him. Not because I you know, he hadn't drawn a weapon, but your instincts are very tight now. So what you see is a hostile move. You're, you're in the killing mode. I hesitate, thank God, for a split second because he has no weapon, trying to see if there's other enemy movement. Anyway, the teenager, he has a, a disability. I don't know what it is. I'm not a doctor, but I, I can see his movements. Movements are what I would describe as, as, as spastic. He's nervous. He's sort of smiling at me. Uh, his hands are jerking, not because he's scared, because he has no control. His mother comes running over to him, throws herself on him, is crying and pleading with me not to kill him. That's a mistake. It wasn't a war crime. It's understandable. Had I killed him, uh, there would have been no uh, aftermath, even if, you know, even if a grand jury descended on the place or a court martial board. But you always have to think it through, make sure you're getting it right. I learned uh, that this wasn't my doing, although I react to it. I learned never send off a composite unit. If you're going into combat, you want to make sure that the team you're sending in combat knows each other, have worked with each other, even if only for a day or two. And what I'm referring to here is the mission I got to do a reconnaissance patrol, but they restricted me to taking essentially one of my own squads out of the three squads I had in the platoon. And then they gave me odds and sods of soldiers gathered together and sent out to me in a helicopter. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. They didn't know each other, I don't think. Maybe two or three might have known each other. In the end, we had an 18-man unit of which my squad, my RTO, 
and myself knew each other, but we didn't know the others. And many of them didn't know each other. And it was a rough patrol. This is where you're, we had to recon with one of the first prototypes of what later was uh, widespread night vision devices to see if we could intercept a battalion of North Vietnamese moving in the mountain. I have a bad night that night, but we almost kill each other. That's what it boils down to. And I would say, because we didn't know each other, didn't know SOPs, didn't recognize voices or whatever. So that's a big, big learning. What I also learned that night is uh, to come to grips with your mortality, which although I'd seen a lot of action up to that time and had even been wounded, it never so graphically presented itself uh, on that mountain. And I, uh, I, it's not a glorious night for me, I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> on the other hand, we stayed alive and we all came back in one piece. Thank you for sharing all that, Jim. And, and I think it serves as a good segue to talking about trying to prepare young leaders to face these sorts of situations that you know a, a doctrinal publication or manual is not really going to, to ready you for. Uh, so I'd like to talk about decision-forcing cases, and in particular, a decision-forcing case called The Farmer which is something I developed, I want to say it was 2011, based on a vignette, a, a, a small passage in your book, Platoon Leader. So as a case developer, I don't think I've ever asked the protagonist of a case, you know, someone I was interviewing, what it was like to work with me, the person developing and sometimes teaching the case. So your, your answers here might be instructor for current and would-be case developers and teachers. So first question is, what was your initial reaction when a stranger, me, reached out to you to discuss turning an anecdote, a vignette from your book into a decision-making exercise for U.S. Marine officers? Well, a good question, and I'll uh, be straightforward with you, as I've tried to be with all of your questions. Um, As soon as you reached me, there was intrigue. I didn't remember the sentence or two or three I spent on the farmer. So I thought, well, it's, this is understandable. I wrote this book so it could be used as a case study and particularly wrote it for my fellow platoon leaders and senior NCOs at the, uh, at the tactical level. So it's okay for people to ask questions about anything I wrote or described. That's why I wrote the book. And when you asked me that, I thought, sure, I'll tell them what I can remember about it. First thing I had to do is go read it in the book. Because uh, to me, it was not the major event that it probably actually was. And so when I began to answer your questions on it, I thought it's fair game. Uh, I could see where that could have been the wrong thing to do. And so for our listeners, just to explain it, we uh, were on a patrol after another action, pursuing the enemies, the combat patrols, more than a reconnaissance patrol. So much so, I figure out we're being trailed can't remember exactly why you sort of sense those things. So I drop off what we, and I think it's still called a stay behind ambush. You want the enemy to think that you're all still moving, but I've left a small group back to catch whoever's tracking us. But we have to continue. We have a mission order, so I I can't stop the original mission. As we proceed with the uh, remaining patrol, we come to an area that is obviously mine. But at this point, 
we all know the signs. This is a mind area and we're in it. We entered it. We're not sure how deep we are in it, but we're in it. And about that time, uh, and we're working our way through it, by the way, I should add that. Uh, but it's really slow, slow go. You're looking for problems. You're looking for uh, loose foliage that has been rearranged. Uh, you're looking for these little signs. So you, and, and you're having everyone walk on the same steps as the guy in front of you. So you don't step on a mine. But then I get a call to stay behind uh, ambush is made contact. It's a uh, bigger force than we anticipated and they suffered a casualty and uh, I need to get out of there and back to the uh, day behind ambush. Well, we got that damn minefield. And that's the straightest and quickest way back. And we know the route, we've already been through it, but we don't know the exact route through the minefield with certainty. And we can't spend the time to feel our way back. One of the soldiers has noted a farmer uh, who was working this area. There was a potato patch nearby. And uh, I have him brought to me and I ask him to lead us through. He doesn't want to do it. And I threaten him and he leads us through. So I could go into further detail on the incident, but that's what we're referring to, which your question is referring to. So I make the decision to have him lead us through it under threat because uh, I think the consequences of not doing that is going to be the death of a soldier and maybe the death of all of them or further uh, casualties. So. And then you come along and ask me about that. Turned out to be quite a case study. What I didn't anticipate is the exhaustion with what you would ask about it. So <laughs> I, I didn't have notes on all of that. Right. Trying to go on recall. So you're right. It was 2011, 2012. Well, heck, that's uh, right there. We're talking about 40 years after the event. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but you did a thorough job. What I learned pretty quickly was that you're a professional uh, in what you do. And uh, I also was cognizant, this is gonna be dangled out there, <laughs> hundreds of uh, young officers to uh, think about and talk about. So I'm a little bit under the idea, well, I better, uh, number one, I better get my recall right here and I better be consistent, but I gotta make the case that in extremists, you have to make some tough calls. So a long answer to your question, but I had great respect for you. You have to get that. Uh, and I do understand the import of it as a lesson because it has to do with the law of land warfare. It also has to do with the moral questions. Uh, and I, I want to be fair in explaining it, but I also wanted to make the best case that I could for having done it. Sure, sure. And I, I certainly did ask you a lot of questions, Jim, and I, and, I, and who knows the 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 case. As I like to say, you know, cases are living documents. You continue to refine and improve them over time. But I do remember, and I've kept, I think, all the correspondence. But questions about details that you know, I think anyone would be hard pressed to remember. But you did, I think, a admirable job. The case, as far as I know, is still used at the basic school. I think as part of their ethics package. I know at one point we we had an interesting experience where uh, a lieutenant had experienced the case, gone through the case, and had a very negative experience, so much so that he wrote an article about the case and how it was presented. We later found out after I'd done some investigation, the instructor would force the students to either threaten the farmer or 
go through the, the minefield and, and, and risk certain death. I think that that's what the formulation was. And that was not the intent of the case or how it had been originally designed. It was more of you get to the situation, there's the farmer, you ask him once, he says no, you ask him again, he says no, what now? Not a either or black or white binary decision. There are other things you can do. There, here's an opportunity for you to exercise your creativity, your creative thinking skills, your problem skills. Um, but that elicited a response from me. And I remember you and I chatting about it because I think the, the Lieutenant Wall having good intentions by virtue of the fact that the case was not taught properly completely missed the point of, of the case. So that was a lesson for me. And I guess one lesson is, hey, you don't know how other people are going to use your work over time. And you sure hope that they, they, they use it and interpret it in the way that that uh, you had intended. Jim, what's it been like, I guess, watching the evolution of the case? I know maybe it was earlier this year or late last year, but I had, there's a PowerPoint version of this case as well. I had um, recently revised it and then sent it to you. So I, I'm curious about just your take on how you've seen the case go from three or four sentences in your book to something that's gone through several revisions. It's used at places other than, than the basic school as well. I know for a while, the uh, infantry small unit leaders course out in Camp Pendleton, uh, School of Infantry West was using it, I think as one of their initial events to, to gauge right. how these soon to be squad leaders, infantry squad leaders would react in a situation like that. So it's, it's, it's seen a lot of mileage to, to put it, put it bluntly. Well, there was a question there, I think, with how do I feel? Yeah, that it's yeah, yeah. I think it's a good thing uh, that it evolves. And it's right to study these things in detail. I think that one's pretty straightforward. That's a tactical question. And um, as you questioned me, you made me second guess myself. Did I consider all the options in the few minutes I had to make a decision? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I don't know if I had. I think I had run through quickly what I could do. You had questioned me, for example, uh, couldn't they bring in a helicopter mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and get the wounded guy out? And uh, we talked about that. But as you're going through that, so you do think very quickly, well, maybe they could do that, but then how's a helicopter get down? There's an enemy in there. And what if they don't do it right? And what if more of them go? And what if you know all of them are down in a few minutes? I got to get back to them. What if the helo is shot? I mean, that then, you know, that, that, right, that sure. makes then you the, really got a problem. Exactly. Black Hawk down. Exactly. That would have been Huey down in this case. Right. Uh, so uh, back to your question, I think it's, it's right to uh, study it. And it's interesting. Uh, I thought you developed it as it should have been. And there's always going to be misinterpretations. But that last comment leads to an even uh, secondary concern. It's, it's uh, how people 50 years later look upon back upon the realities of what you knew and how you operated 50 years prior, or even the morality of what you did. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example, which caught me by surprise. One of the places that studies platoon leader routinely is West Point, no surprise there. They, at the moment, in this year, 2021, and for the past several years, it's required reading in the capstone course. And just like the courses you developed, it's done not to uh, say, oh, in this interesting book, it's really get back to what would you do, Lieutenant? But in that 
in platoon leader, I have, a, a, again, a brief passage where we pick up a Vietnamese family. I'm pulled away in a patrol. Uh, when I come back, the family is still there. It's, it's a, a young mother with two children and two uh, older people. A lot of things happen even before I go, but to come to the, the nub of the issue, my, or what I just mentioned, at a lecture I was giving, or not a lecture, a talk, and taking questions from the graduating class, so about uh, about uh, 1,100 cadets in an auditorium, some of the faculty, uh, they had also flown in uh, 100 or more uh, ROTC students. The question comes up based on this statement. I note in my writing of the book that there seemed to be friction between the young mother and the platoon sergeant who had remained behind. And he was a good platoon sergeant, done a lot of good tactical stuff, wasn't as aggressive as I thought he should have been, but inbounds, he's a good platoon sergeant. And um, I note the friction, and I think he has been heavy-handed with her. And I used the term when I wrote the book. I had it after I got questioned very, very closely by one of the cadets, and then a couple of others, and then one of the faculty. It was, why didn't you call for an investigation of the sergeant? So here's what I wrote. So I got the sense that he had violated her in some way. Now, when I wrote that book back in the early 90s, actually the late 70s, early uh, 80s, violation did not mean then what it means today. I just felt he'd been flirtatious with her or leering at her or making her feel uncomfortable instead of violating her space. But I uh, mentioned that uh, I felt it was time for him to come out of the field, the platoon sergeant. The family was subsequently evacuated very quickly. But the question was really based on current ideas of Me Too. If you suspected he violated her, why didn't you immediately call for an investigation? Right. And as I'm asked that question, I still feel that way. You questioners don't understand. If I had asked for an investigation on more than a glance between the two of them, they would have thought I was nuts. I would have been investigated. Mm -hmm. Plus, I also thought just as strongly that would not have been fair to that sergeant. No complaint was raised. No one said anything. Uh, the woman didn't complain. All I was going on was a glance and making a snap judgment, reinforcing other indicators I had it was time for the sergeant to come out of the field. So as I try to answer that on the, uh, at the time, I noticed that I'm not getting anywhere with these answers mm. because of modern views on what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to question, but I think uh, when you're about to critique something that happened in the old days, try to consider the environment in the old days. By the way, if I felt he had raped her or touched her, or chased her, I would have had it investigated from hell or high water. That's not what I meant when I said about the friction between them. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting the the role that context plays, how language changes over time, subtleties are added, nuances are added, and that the the meaning people were assigning the, the you know these these younger leaders and and readers the meaning they're assigning to that passage, to those words, were, were not necessarily the same meaning that you had in mind, right? But that- under, change, yeah, meaning yeah, yeah, and then under, under the, yeah, under the, the current 
conditions, I hear violate, right? And I think, oh, that's, you know, someone was raped or, or somehow you know, sexually assaulted or what, whatever the case may be. You're reading that. That's written years ago. You're reading it today. And now we're, we're questioning the author. You know, why, didn't you, why didn't you do more? It's not exactly what you think, right? And, and as you just said, if you thought it had been what they thought, you would have gotten involved immediately. So just a, a fascinating point there. So Jim, now I'd like to talk about some of your early influences, your professional development in the army and in, in serving in the army post-Vietnam. So who was the first leader you recall who took an interest in your professional development? Well, probably my father. My father was a professional soldier. Although he, uh, he never put any demand on me to follow in his footsteps, but uh, he was a good example. He was uh, uh, an outgoing guy, he's a rugged guy, the World War II veteran, did not see uh, action in World War II, but did serve in the European theater. Uh, even served as a, shows you how quickly can things move on a mobilizing army. He was drafted in 1942 by... Uh, 19 and he goes overseas in 1942 England and he's a first sergeant either in the first sergeant not with E8 stripes on him but he is the he is the first sergeant of a company yeah. by 1944 an interesting company too at that time we were hard pressed for infantry replacements mm-hmm. here's some esoteric uh, knowledge from World War II we were giving uh, we were uh, commuting sentences of inmates that would volunteer to serve. And uh, you might not be surprised that some of them volunteered. Sure, sure. <laughs> anyway, so he, uh, he's, actually, uh, he's actually the first sergeant of a, a number of, of a company forming in England and they're ex-inmates. And he says they were a rough bunch, but my father was a rough guy and he could handle <laughs> it. <laughs> He'd been a very good boxer before he got drafted. Yeah. And might've fought pro if he, and you, you chose, uh, a lot of your NCOs were chosen for their physical ability, mm-hmm. as well as their uh, many years of acumen from the military. Sure. Anyway, I, I've gone on too much on that. He certainly was influential, and his peers were influential. Had great respect for soldiers, and understood, I think intrinsically, the worth of a non-commissioned officer. Mm. At West Point, I came across many uh, professional officers and NCOs who were very, uh, very much a model for me, how to act, how to hold themselves. Uh, there were two sergeant majors uh, that were very good. One was uh, Command Sergeant Major Haggerty, who uh, became a battalion sergeant major in Vietnam. And one was Command Sergeant Major Arthurs, Ted Arthurs. Let me give you an insight to the sorts of NCOs I'm running into as a cadet. Arthurs was a... Uh, Command Sergeant Major in the 173rd Airborne Brigade goes in on Doc To, uh, the uh, at the worst of the fighting in 1967. So a battalion is committed. Take uh, take this mountain, Doc To. Uh, it's decimated. They start the day with 867 effective. They're going to take 802 casualties. Arthur's in is in a helicopter with the S3, the company commander of the company on the ground is killed. All his lieutenants are killed. And the battalion commander tells the uh, S3 to go in and take command. 
They have no idea what's left, but there is a fighting element up there. The helicopter comes in, the major jumps out, he's killed. It's bad. Sergeant Major Arthur, with no further ado, jumps out, takes command. There are 17 men left in a company, and they're all wounded. Arthur uh, draws them back into a perimeter, makes sure their feet are touching so he can account for them, and they hold out the night. Uh, that's one of many actions that Arthur's had. He was not only a veteran of uh, Vietnam, he was a veteran of the Korean War as well. Mm-hmm. So people like this are, I'm running across, Arthur's, by the way, is a guy that tells me, you want to go to a good unit, go to 173rd Airborne Brigade. Mm. So I did it. But it continues that. When I, I mentioned I was assigned to a company in Hawaii on the way to Vietnam, there was a captain there who was an OCS graduate, name of Reinhardt, Joe Reinhardt. Wonderful, wonderful officer, two silver stars. And here's what he did for me. I'm, uh, although I grew up in many different places because my father was in the army, essentially I spent the bulk of my career, of my youth, excuse me, going to school in New York City. Mm-hmm. Not the bulk of it, more time than the others, maybe a total of three or four years in New York City. I'm not a great map reader, and Reinhardt recognizes that. He's got me for 30 days. He makes sure by the time I leave him, I know how to read a map. And I will tell you, for an infantry officer, to this day, GPS notwithstanding, most important skill you, you should learn, how to read a map. Mm-hmm. Know where you are. Know where, how to get to where you go. So again and again, I'm meeting people that are taking time to impart a skill or some knowledge or some insight standing as examples to me. And this continues through my career. So one of the wonderful things about military service, you meet some of the most fascinating people. There's probably no one you can't learn from, no matter how good they are, how bad they are. The good ones you learn what the good things to do are, and when the bad ones you know what the bad things not to do are. And in some people, like uh, showing the human nature, you can learn both, the good things and the bad things. Yeah. Jim, to what degree did your fellow officers, and, and, and I'm thinking as you're a company grade officer, so second lieutenant, first lieutenant, captain, to what degree did your fellow officers study the art of war? And did that, did you notice an increase, decrease, stay about the same when you became a field grade officer? Because I'm just curious about the interests, the professional interests or lack thereof that you, you saw in your fellow officers, both as a company grade and field grade officer. Well, first of all, I'll talk about the uh, level of, of capabilities and potential. And then that it, uh, I find that to be a very strong group. And I uh, hesitate to disparage any part of the officer corps as a group. There are, of course, always the outliers that don't have any business being in the military. There are some that are overly ambitious and they let that drive them. There are some that are indifferent to their responsibilities. But for the most part, those are outliers. By the time you have uh, evolved as an officer, there's been, been enough eyes on you that you've probably got some real merit in you. The degree of professional study of the military varies. Almost all officers I knew had an interest in military things. They wouldn't have been there. In terms of the reading, they write, like, like to read about military actions. They like to read uh, novels that focused on military people. 
I certainly liked history as a body, particularly military history, of course, but very few actually delve into the depth of the profession. Uh, they do, uh, that's why you have the schools, by the way, the schools encourage that. They want you to think not only about your current responsibilities, but where you might be going and what might occur to you. So I find that most military officers read military stuff, but some more deeply than others. Most talked about it and reflected on it, but like all things, some with a uh, very narrow view, some with a broader view, few with an in-depth view. But notwithstanding that, as I began this answer, usually you have a very rich body of uh, officers that know how to think about the profession and sort of grow with it the longer they stay with it. You were in the army after Vietnam fell and this, you know, this, the organization gets called various things, hollow army, broken army. What was the army like in your personal experience after Vietnam? It's hard for people to imagine today how bad it had gotten. It, uh, there's nothing worse than a defeated army. I think you could, if you read military stuff, you'll see that line every now and then. But coming out of Vietnam, we were a defeated army. Some would say, well, you, we never lost a battle uh, that lasted you know, more than a couple hours. We never were defeated on the battlefield. But to me, that's a minor uh, point. We lost the war. We pulled out, we pulled out under duress. I mean, the enemy was coming into capital of South Vietnam. And we were just a few left at that time, trying to get out as best we could, flying off the roof of the American embassy. Think about that. Trying to get some Vietnamese out. We didn't get enough out. We did, in the end, get several hundred thousand. But we had essentially a whole population uh, was now suppressed by the enemy that won the war. So back in the States, the army was ill-disciplined. It was uh, riddled with drug abuse. It was not well-trained. We were fighting back internally to come to grips with our own collapse. We had disintegrated. We still had a Cold War going on. We still had a big mission in Europe. And there were always threats around the world. Many of the officers and NCOs were dis disillusioned. In fact, when you, you go back to Vietnam, the NCO Corps uh, really attrited. Many of them had been killed off or wounded off so badly. The, if you were in a maneuver unit, and here I'm talking about uh, infantry, armor, and we did have some army uh, helicopters, particularly in the infantry, and you're a, let's say a staff sergeant or a sergeant first class, which would put you at platoon level. You have two or three tours. The chances of not getting wounded are very slim, very slim. Your first tour, you might have a 80% chance of getting wounded. You survive that, you don't get wounded, you're intact. You're back in the States for a year and a half and you get back, you got another year, you're probably got another 80% or 70% chance. And then you do it a third time. You can imagine what the attrition was. So officers are leaving. NCOs are uh, treated heavily. Uh, it was a tough time. But I, having said that, the Army came to grips with itself, began to really get introspective and study. We had enough strength left uh, in the NCO and officer corps to rebuild. And we did rebuild. We did 
rebuild in a fantastic way. Mm -hmm. So when we get through the 80s and into the early 90s, we are a powerful force. Once again, we've got things like, like the National Training Center, which is a wonderful training vehicle. We replicate those centers overseas where you, when you go through a month at the National Training Center, it's like you've been on campaign for a month. Hmm. Uh, take from a guy that did three rotations at the National Training Center. And then I think uh, 11 other visits for short, shorty periods of time. Uh, you really get to see what it's like with the physical strain, the psychological strain. You take a school like uh, the School of Advanced Military Studies, where you take a select group of volunteer officers about the uh, senior captain, junior major level, mm -hmm. and give them a second year at the Command General Staff College. Now it's called the School of Advanced Military Studies. And you read deeply into the profession of arms and you uh, do endless war games, uh, intensive, intensive study, uh, you're improving it. So I could go on. The army had gathered itself, had corrected its course, and uh, has done a very good job on uh, building back. But right after Vietnam, it was a difficult time. It was dangerous to be in a U.S. military unit because of the, the unrest in it. As a company commander at Fort Carson, I felt it was a tinderbox that required almost constant attention from the leadership to make sure it didn't explode. So if we could actually continue with that experience, you're at Fort Carson, you had a mechanized infantry company, is that correct? Yes, right. Could you describe, and, and, and you don't have to focus just on the disciplinary aspect uh, or the morale, but could you describe your experience as this mechanized infantry company commander? You know, how well did you make the transition from serving in an airborne unit to now leading a, a MET company and doing that in the context of unrest? And as you said, you know, being in the middle of a, a tinderbox. Well, uh, the, the first one is really a, a mechanics, almost literally uh, challenge. Uh, you don't have a lot of maintenance to do an airborne unit. You get into a mechanized infantry unit or an armor unit or right. anything with machines that move a lot of them. You're working hard. I remember when I, I took over on a uh, cold day, and uh, I think the third or fourth day afterwards, uh, an inspection team came through my motor pool, and we had a vehicle called the GOAT then. The GOAT was like a early, very, very basic uh, uh, Humvee. I mean, it was a, actually a terrible piece of equipment. Anyway, I think there were five in my company. I had I had just seen them at a glance, and when the inspection team started the uh, engines in each one, the windows cracked. <laughs> Every one of them. So it was a uh, a bad moment for a new commander when yeah. uh, every one of his goats suddenly is operationally ineffective because you have these shattered windshields. Right. <laughs> but uh, so you quickly learn about maintenance. But that was not the real challenge. Uh, I quickly learned around maintenance and anybody can do that. The Army has a well-developed system of maintenance. You just have to learn the form, learn the techniques, learn the procedures, and then as a commander, stay on top of it mm -hmm. and rely on good people, which they assign to you, to, that really do understand mechanics, you know, how vehicles work and engines run, so right. on. Uh, the real challenge at Fort Carson 
was the uh, earlier question, the disintegration of the army. I had uh, an understrength unit. The policy was to sort of stand down the army that had grown for Vietnam. We're now out of Vietnam. I got back in uh, middle of 71. The war still going on, but we've pulled out many of the ground forces. Now, the 173rd pulled out of Vietnam just about the time I came back. And the 173rd had been the longest standing active army uh, unit in Vietnam as a brigade. It went over in 65 and came out in 71. But uh, the soldiers that were in the unit were, were two types. Those that had already served in Vietnam were now in a holding pattern until they could be discharged. And new recruits that had not been to Vietnam and had no experiences. And the old timers were telling him, hey, don't worry about this BS. We'll tell you what you can do. They were surly about it. I'll give you one example of this, how, how surly it could get, almost shocking. I had gone home at the end of a duty day one time and uh, about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, I get a call from a platoon sergeant who's the staff duty NCO. And he said, there's been an incident between a soldier and the lieutenant who was on duty. Now notice I'm keeping senior people on duty around the clock. So I come in. It turned out the uh, soldier that misbehaved was a uh, twice busted soldier, Vietnam veteran, drug addict, uh, short of his, uh, very short on his days left. And he had an altercation with the lieutenant. Lieutenant got angry and had, uh, the soldier was wearing a helmet. And the lieutenant had, in his frustration with this guy in his face, had popped him on the head with a clipboard on his helmet. Now, it didn't really hurt him, but you can't have a physical act like that on the soldier. So the first thing I have is a officer now that I have to decide what to do with, but I also have the soldier. And so after I questioned the officer, of course, I questioned the duty NGO that called me. We're talking about 12 o'clock at night, one o'clock in the morning now. Uh, I call in the soldier. And when you question someone, you want to do it in private, take some notes, of course, for a record, but you don't want the other people around. You're trying to get the individual stories. And the, uh, the soldier comes in, his attitude is surly, surly to the max. So I ask him a couple of questions, they're straightforward questions. There's no sirs getting in. And I'm reminding him, uh, you refer to me as captain or sir. He doesn't like that. And at one point he stands up I had told him he could sit down. Now he stands up, but he's in a fighting posture. And I'm thinking, God's sakes. And he's already taken on one officer. Now he wants to take on the company command. Right, right. And uh, I have to verbally get him under control because I don't want to end up like my, my lieutenant getting frustrated and popping him. Then I'm in trouble. Right. Uh, and all of this. But uh, you had to watch that. That's the sort of, of uh, insurrection you're dealing with. I got him under control. Didn't have to be physical. Didn't have to call in the NCO to subdue him, <laughs> which would have been another mess. This kind of stuff is happening all the time because the army has turned on itself now. But the army almost simultaneously reforms itself. So after I'm in command for three months and a lot of those soldiers that are misbehaving are processing out, I get a I get a windfall profit. The army has gone out. They're now starting to create a volunteer army, and so they had uh, upped the number of recruiters, and they had popular. They had focused some of the recruiters 
on uh, parts of the Midwest. And I get, a, uh, I get an influx of about 100 soldiers who just finished basic training. And they're all from the same general areas in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And most of them know each other and they've joined as a group and they've gone through basic training. Now they've not been to the advanced individual training. My windfall is I get to train them, advanced individual training. So suddenly I go from a broken company with broken vehicles to an influx of new blood and I'm in charge of how to train them in a mechanized infantry unit. And I'm doing everything from, uh, from basic tactics, you know, fire and maneuver, you know, three second rushes, three to six round machine gun bursts, to uh, something that became known as the Macondo course. The army always goes for exotic sounding titles. My brigade commander, who is a guy named David R. Hughes, who had the Distinguished Service Cross from his service in uh, Korea, as well as a bunch of other medals from his service in Vietnam, comes up with a good idea and asked me to enter it into the uh, program, this AIT program, train them how to fight with the 113 and make it hardcore, high adventure training. So in the end, we were growing up these canyons in Colorado, live fire 50 caliber machine guns from the top of an M113, Kind of a rustic mechanized vehicle. And we are assaulting hills with fire and maneuver and infantry squads are piling out of the back and coming on the line and uh, doing three second rushes. You know, we got targets for them to hit live fire stuff. Yeah. It's highly adventure. One of the sidelines while I'm talking about that was to test the limits of the 113. Mm. So the way I would do that is never ask soldier do what you won't do. So myself, a senior NCO or a senior or one of my lieutenants go out, just the two of us and one with three, say, okay, here's the steep hill. Let's see how well the one with three does on this. Sometimes they did well and sometimes they didn't. Sure. We never lost anybody, I'll say that. But we sure got some bloody lips and bloody noses from getting bumped around. Yeah, I can imagine. So you see the challenges are there, but the opportunities are there as well. You, you may have just described the answer to my next question. Uh, maybe there's a, another answer, but during your time as a company commander, what did you find most rewarding from the command? Was it this, this turnaround in, in the, the quality of soldier, the buy-in from your soldiers, the ability to train them, or were, were there other things? Was it, you know? Well, I guess I use the word windfall. I windfall, mean, yeah, uh, yeah. Being the gift of these wonderful new soldiers that I could train and develop uh, right out of basic training was a windfall. But also, which I enjoyed greatly, was the caliber of the uh, NCOs and the officers I met. I had two wonderful first sergeants. They had seen plenty of action. They had been around the Army a long time. They were wonderful. Just respected and admired them so much. Uh, They were so key to what we did. Uh, The last one I had was Sergeant Major Roselle. He had had this very bland sounding job on his military forms. It was called the the Studies Operations Group, Mm. SOG, S-O-G. Oh, yeah. I think I've got the acronym right. Uh, And I thought when I first heard that, well, 
what kind of administrative job was that? It wasn't administrative at all. Right. They, were, they were doing the snooping and pooping, sneaking and peeking deep in enemy uh, territory. Right. right. So this guy uh, was uh, immune to uh, any near-term challenge pressure. <laughs> he took it in stride. <laughs> wow. It's, it sounds like already, you know, as, as a captain and going back to your father going back to West Point, you had encounters with all of these phenomenal and highly experienced leaders. You know, I have- mentioned uh, David R. Hughes. Mm-hmm. I had a company, a, a, a battalion commander, wonderful. His name was uh, Colonel LaBerry, Le- and entered the army before it was in- integrated. He was mm-hmm. black, black officer, wonderful officer. There was a lot of racial unrest in the army at this time. So you got a young white company commander trying to maintain a disciplined force. You have cultural movements in the U.S. Army that are trying to undermine that. Mm-hmm. And uh, LaBerry, who had been, I'm sure, suffered many, many a slights in his career, was immune to any of those sorts of pressures. You know, his approach would be, uh, Jim, your job is to, Garrett, is to create a fighting unit. You do everything the right way, I'll back you, you make a mistake, and I'll tell you, you make a second mistake, you know, you're in trouble. But he was as good as his word. I mean, he was just a wonderful officer. So they're out there. Yeah. You later become a battalion S3 operations officer of, I think it's an infantry battalion in South Korea. How, yeah. would, how would you describe that experience? What were some of the greatest challenges you experienced in that billet? Oh, that's a wonderful place to soldier. And if you're a if you're again in a maneuver effort, you're seeing a lot of hard training. We were uh, on alert all the time. We were within a quick march uh, in vehicles to the DMZ itself. And in fact, we had, uh, I think it was six or seven weeks in the DMZ where we relieved the battalion that normally fulfills that mission, a critical mission, almost a live mission. But, uh, anything can happen anytime. Yeah. In fact, I remember going on alert one night that. It seemed uh, like, and when I was being told by higher headquarters, this is it, it, the balloon is going up. So you can really soldier a lot. That's a rugged climate, freezing cold in winter, burning hot in summer. I think it's probably the coldest I've ever been, also the hottest I've ever been, to include Vietnam. Uh, A lot of marching, it was a straight leg unit, an infantry unit, no mechanized stuff, so, and steep, steep terrain, and lots of it, you never could walk on a straight line. You might go down into a valley and uh, valleys always seemed like they were 500 yards wide or less. And then you're going back uphill, <laughs> uphill, up really up mountain. Right. So it was pretty rugged and um, it's a hardship tour. There's no families there. You don't go home at night. Uh, so it was an interesting tour for sure with uh, an imminent risk. What was it like being a, an operations officer for a battalion? So you had your baptism by fire in Vietnam as a platoon leader. You then switched to a mechanized unit. Then you later go on to a straight leg unit. So there's this switching back and forth. And now you're the operations officer. You know, how, how well prepared did you feel for that position? And you know, what are some of the, the common things that you might find yourself doing in that, in that position? Well, you are the op- operations officer, so you're responsible for all the training. And should you go to war, you're going to direct uh, the execution of the plans. You're going to create the plans under the guidance of the commander, uh, give him the options, 
Uh, and then once he decides, then you'll make sure that they are followed through on and done right. Commander will do that too, by the way. But uh, as I began it, I like I think any job you take on for the first time, even though you've thought about it and had some training for it, I had already been uh, in the army by that time. Uh, let's see, that's 1978, so about nine years been there. But I had to learn, you know, the skills of an operations officer. You're dealing with artillery. You're dealing with the air defense. You're dealing. You might got to make sure you got good support with supplies. You have to know the whole picture. You got to put it all together. Uh, you have to serve the commander, given his style, his emphasis, uh, but you are responsible. And you're dealing with people. Whenever you're dealing with people, you know, things can go awry. People make mistakes. People misbehave at a critical moment. Someone doesn't show up. Cold in Korea was a real challenge. You had to make sure uh, you guard against frostbite. That was true in Germany as well, uh, which means you didn't say, oh, we can suck it up, uh, you know, be tough. You had to realize when you'd lost somebody in the mountains, go find them, get them back. So all of these things come into play. I felt I learned quickly. I felt uh, if, I, if I made some errors, it was thinking as the operations officer, I had so much authority that I could do things without checking with the commander. Mm-hmm. But the commander reminded me I had to check with him first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So those were early mistakes that I tried not to repeat. Again, I had a great commander in Korea. So, uh, Jim, I'd like to talk more about some of your, your Cold War experiences, billets you held, things that you, you learned during this time, and your experiences in general. One thing I'm really interested in is you served with General John Galvin. He was the Supreme Allied Commander, but I think also the Commanding General of European That's correct. Command. He was both he was a NATO commander for the land war, and actually in Tire war, not just a landlord, on the continent of Europe. And he uh, was also the commander of all U.S. forces in Europe. And were, you were his aide for a time? No, I was not his aide. I was his, uh, his title was I was military assistant to the Supreme Allied Command of Europe. So uh, I was a leader of a cell. There were about six of us, all officers. Uh, and our job was to support him in his... Uh, how should I put this? Uh, we would do a lot of the uh, immediate staff work on the spot with him. So if he said something, we made note of it. If he uh, heard something, we made note of it. If he had to coordinate with higher headquarters, uh, we were to ensure that that happened. If he did an interview with a reporter, we had to monitor that interview and then see how it comes out when transcribed. If he's going to give a speech, he wrote for him with his guidance to speech. If he was going to submit a paper, policy paper, up through ch- uh, channels to the National Security Council, or share some critical information with the Central Intelligence Agency, things like that. We, we traveled, usually only one of us at a time, and I was the principal for three years. I traveled with him. Uh, usually when you travel with him, he had his own, uh, his own mode of transportation, had his own aircraft, more than one. Uh, at that time, NATO had 16 nations in it, so it was not unheard of to fly back to the United States, do three days, go before a congressional hearing. You'd help him prepare the remarks for that, and then you would make sure you noted everything that happened there. 
you might have a visit with the national security advisor to the president and you'd be present. Uh, I could go on, but you see, you're doing a lot of the, uh, the sort of command support responsibilities that affect a person with that range of duties. It sounds like a, a tremendous opportunity, but also a lot of, you know, h- high visibility, you know, high level stuff going on. Well, and, you don't want to mess it up. I, yeah, I had really. one, one big mess up. He had done a, uh, we had gone, he was a wonderful guy, General Gow, and I really admired him. One of the finest men, if not, if not the finest man I ever met, other than my own father. Yeah. <laughs> he was a good man. He's passed away now. But he had gone to uh, Denver, and I'd gone with him. He'd been, I forget, we were going somewhere, and he'd been invited to stop by, and he met with a couple of editorial boards of various newspapers in Denver, and one of them he talked about, they asked him a personal question, well, what's it like coordinating 16 nations? And he made remarks like, they kind of went like this. Well, if I say something that the Turks don't like, I got to make sure I explain to them why it's something we really need to do. But right behind that, I better make sure that I tell the Greeks why we need to do that. Because if I don't, I'm going to hear from both of them, right. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, one of the jobs, uh, what I, I generally would write up the transcripts of that because I'm listening, taking notes, and I entered that. And uh, we had a hotline. I was in his office, but we were like uh, about maybe 25 feet apart. The hotline was you know, literally a red buzzer. I mean, right. the Supreme Allied Commander wants to see you. So it it buzzes. And I thought, hmm, I wonder what's up this time. So I walk in there and I, uh, as I walk in the outer office before his office, the uh, liaison from the Turkish government is there. As I walk through the inner office, just before you get to his office, the representative from the Greek government oh is my. there. Oh my. And then I walk into General Galvin's office. It says him and I, and he says, uh, Jim, did you notice anything on the way in? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So I should have edited that a bit, you see. Sure, sure. And I missed it. It was my responsibility not to miss it. I'd love to hear more about the general. Did you, you know, did you guys find yourselves having, it sounds like you spent a good amount of time with him, especially on travel. You know, did you guys talk about combat, did you talk about warfare, you know, would you discuss military literature and, and things like that? Did 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 he develop you in those sorts of areas? And, and the answer to all of that is yes. He is just. Uh, we had many hours together. Uh, the um, intercontinental flights. Just imagine what they're like. <clears throat> he had many hours. He's got a lot of duties, and I do too. But uh, we're also together in a small aircraft. I shouldn't say small aircraft. It's ample enough for his needs. But he was just an interesting guy. He'd written three books. He was an expert on on Waterloo. Mm. Uh, And he would often entertain uh, chiefs of military mission, national leaders at the battlefield. And he knew that battle like the back of his hand. And he would uh, go so far as to show them with the actual weapon, how many rounds you could get off with a musket in a minute if you were a good trained soldier. But we were forever sharing ideas uh, on books we'd read and uh, and things to consider. And he was, you know, they are human beings just like you are, and they want to reflect. And sometimes they're the boss, and you're listening, and yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir. 
but much of the time, uh, of course, always from me to him or any subordinate to senior sir, but he's telling you about his childhood and he's talking to you about his experiences in Vietnam and, mm-hmm. and he's sharing insights on certain people, almost always in a positive way. Uh, but it was a wonderful experience. I learned a lot from him and uh, miss him greatly, as a matter of fact. So, Jim, you are serving in the Cold War, and our principal opponents in, in that fight are the Soviets and the, the, you know, their Warsaw Pact. What was it like serving in Europe during the Cold War? What did you learn about our opponents, and, and how did that thinking evolve over time? Uh, so really anything there I think would be interesting. No, it's uh, really a fascinating time. I was a battalion XO up in the northern part of Germany in an infantry unit, again, mechanized, tough unit, 3rd Battalion, 41st Infantry, 2nd uh, Armored Division 4. So I had a just a tremendous war record all along, but I also was uh, briefly, not briefly, for two years, an intelligence officer at United States Army Headquarters in Heidelberg. And then uh, towards the end of my career, as we've talked about, I was the uh, military assistant to the Supreme Allied Commander Europe. And in 1992, I was sent to Moscow. Excuse me, in 1990, uh, yeah, 1992, I sent to Moscow. I was then the director of the School of Advanced Military Studies and was uh, welcomed by the uh, Russian military staff. They're no longer Soviet at the Frunze Military Academy to exchange ideas. So uh, over a lifetime in the military, I really got to observe the, uh, the Soviets and then later the Russians. Uh, at a tactical level, we realized uh, with Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact, we were up against vast numbers. And we had to figure out a way to fight as an army, as a military force with all our allies uh, in such a way as to buy time. We couldn't hold the front lines, but we could make them pay a price for every inch they took, but it would have been brutal. So uh, I could stay there, but it gets more intriguing, particularly by the time I'm working intelligence on a a major assignment, seeing how both sides try to get the picture of what the enemy is doing and how to exploit weaknesses. And I will tell you that uh, intelligence is key to success, you've got to have both uh, offensive intelligence and a defensive counterintelligence uh, effort going. And the counterintelligence also has to have offensive sides to it. But most intriguing, I think, was the end of it when the uh, Soviet Union Warsaw Pact is about to fall apart. And I'm seeing that, I mean, firsthand because I'm working with the Supreme Allied Commander Europe. Sometime in uh, I believe it's 1990. Remember, we're on the cusp of the Soviet Union falling in on itself. Mm. The commander of the Warsaw Pact, the Soviet four-star general, and General Galvin, the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, essentially his counterpart, meet in Rome. And uh, the Soviets haven't quite gone out of existence yet. The Warsaw Pact still exists, but we have the advantage. It's like you're playing a chess game and you now have most of your major and uh, minor pieces, and your opponent's got a couple of pawns left, pretty one-sided. Yeah. But he's still commander of the Warsaw Pact, and there's still lots of tanks out there. 
Uh, I remember that intriguing meeting. One of the things that was driven home to me was the capacity of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union especially to do those things that they really wanted to do. And it presented itself in a very simple way. We land plane, it's afternoon, drive from the Rome airport into town. We stay on the Via Veneto, the major street in Rome. And uh, that evening briefly, uh, the Sakyur meets with the commander of the Warsaw Pact. And during a uh, sort of an icebreaker short discussion, Soviet general asked General Galvin, who was your favorite marshal? Meaning Soviet marshal, starting World War II. <laughs> Sakyur gives him an answer. And, uh, and they move on to the next thing. And the next thing, uh, by the way, it's Zukov. Uh, the next morning, they're going to meet again now for the serious discussion. And here we're, you know, the, the Soviets are trying to save face, but we also want them to stand down for tanks. Uh, we have a process going on. We're about to have mutual inspection mm -hmm. of tanks, and the Soviets actually want to demobilize their tanks. But as the meeting starts, this is now the next morning, the Soviet general presents to Galvin the English copy, brand new book, beautifully bound, Zhukov's Greatest Battles. Wow. <laughs> so how in the world did they do that? The only thing <laughs> I can imagine is they, they must have had an English copy somewhere, but right. they got the word back to Moscow, and that thing got there overnight. No kidding. For an early morning presentation. So yeah. small, small anecdote, but shows you they could do the things that mattered. Yeah, that is impressive. So throughout my time, uh, the bigger picture of the Cold War, they were a formidable enemy. To stop them with conventional warfare would have been a major challenge. I'm not sure we could have done it, but of course we had nuclear options as well. And deterrence is very important. I think if we had shown any weaknesses during the Cold War uh, and they had calculated an advantage, they might have pushed and it could have been brutal. So sticking with the, the Soviets for a moment, so the United States had Vietnam, the Soviet Union had Afghanistan. You were a serving officer when the Soviets invaded and, and fought, a, a, you know, what would be a losing war against the Afghans, the Mujahideen. Did you follow that, that conflict closely? What compare, if so, what comparisons did you see between the Soviet experience and, and your own in, in Vietnam? I followed it, but not as closely as I followed some things in my life. So I cannot pretend I'm an expert on it, but here's what I did note. They were going into a place that has broken empires forever. And I knew that as they went in. I also knew that as we went in, I uh, had some background and reading on it. And I thought this is not gonna end well for either side. I thought the Soviets, as they're always prepared to do, or were prepared to do, I should talk about them in the past tense, but the Russians, still exist. They don't play by the rules. They play very rough. The standards that we set for behavior of our own military are much higher than the standards that uh, historically the Soviets and the Russians have set. Uh, I don't know if that'll carry into the future. I suspect it probably would, but I can't be sure. Mm -hmm. We are much more uh, respective uh, of sovereignties, and rules of land warfare, and not that we're uh, forever without fault, but we just have a higher, higher standard, and we're prone as military people in the West to be held strictly accountable. Mm -hmm. So I did follow all of that, and they did play rough, 
the Soviets in Afghanistan and the Afghans played rough as they always will and always have. Uh, I was not surprised when the uh, Soviets pulled out. I thought it was very poignant the way in which it was done, sort of the, them withdrawing from Afghanistan on the ground is somewhat reminiscent of us withdrawing from Vietnam, in our case by helicopter, but we lost the war is the reality. We haven't withdrawn in that way, but uh, from Afghanistan, uh, we I think have uh, kept casualty down of uh, our foes over there, certainly uh, neutrals. And considering the length of the war, we have had relatively lower casualties than I might have expected when we first went in. Mm -hmm. But it's not over over there. And so it could drag out and could turn bad at some point or another. Sure. Jim, you, you served overseas for large portions of your career. Did you get to train with or work with other militaries often? And, and if so, you know, what were some of these militaries? What were your experiences working with them? Uh, I've worked with them or watched them as they have worked. And uh, it's mixed. The British are very good. The Australians are very good. They're a sharp outfit. They're not a large outfit. <clears throat> the British are not a large outfit. The Germans were very good when they... Uh, were prepared for or preparing for a uh, strike by the, by the Warsaw Pact. The Italians, who are often on fairly the butt of many jokes, they have some very crack units, uh, and uh, they're a good ally, solid ally. <clears throat> the French are fickle. Uh, they'll fight with us in extremists, but they uh, also uh, a very proud country, and uh, they sometimes let their pride uh, lead them to a point that it undermines an, an alliance re- relationship. Mm. I'm referring here to things like asking NATO to get out of France uh, many, many years ago when we still had a very viable threat on the Warsaw Pact. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dutch are small. Uh, the Belgians are even smaller. And of course, uh, the, the lots to be said about northern tier nations in Europe, they would They would fight, but they don't have a lot. They don't have a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. Canada would commit some forces, but uh, they're a continent, they're an ocean away. And whether or not they uh, would uh, be able to mount a major cross-Atlantic offensive without our massive support, I don't know. Since the Cold War, though, I think NATO has been greatly weakened, and I worry about that a great deal. Mm -hmm. The polls are showing great fight. Uh, they're a warrior nation, they're an intellectual nation, they're a strong nation. They've not always been a nation. They were out of business as a nation for over 100 years. But I think they're a staunch ally. I am concerned about the, uh, the tininess, and I think that's the right word, of the armor forces of Germany, of England, and even our own have attrited a bit. We, mm-hmm. I don't think armor warfare is a thing of the past nor do I think conventional warfare is a thing of the past. I think we're right to uh, study uh, and focus on Asia, but we cannot forget Europe. Europe historically has been the uh, critical site and also the site of endless warfare. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have had uh, peace with the exception of the Balkans since the end of World War II in Europe is due to the fact that NATO was strong. 
when it's not good when NATO is weak. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. We're making these comments in the context of, I think, a lot of churn and, and turbulence in the defense world and talking about where should the focus be? What should that focus look like? Looking at the U.S. Marine Corps, what, what sort of organization should it have? What kind of equipment should it buy? As, as you know, Jim, the Marine Corps has deactivated its tank units. So those are, those are a thing of the past, which is an right. odd thing to say. But this, I think, links well to another question I have. You served in the Army during the, the great discussions and debates on maneuver warfare, attrition warfare, with much of this occurring in your sister service, the Marine Corps. But there was plenty of conversation going on in the Army. I'd like to know, did you follow the debates in the Marine Corps at all? I did, uh, particularly uh, at the time I was trying to uh, develop for the Army its operational doctrine. FM 100-5. I also worked very closely with the English, I should uh, mm. point out, who were also doing the doctrine at that time. Even got dispatched to England for a couple of weeks as they began to finalize their efforts. Certainly, uh, the Marine Corps and U.S. Army have missions that will bring them together uh, on the battlefield. Uh, and we need to be interoperable, but we each have our own distinct skill set. The Army, as I see it, is a, is a juggernaut. It is huge and can get much huger. Consider World War II, how huge we became. And although we were very slim and uh, inexperienced at the beginning, we were a major, major, major force to contend with by the end of the war. I think everyone would concede that. By the way, the Soviet Union was a major, major force to contend with as well. Uh, the Marines can only expand so much. Even if they mobilized the reserve forces as well, the army can expand greatly. When you think about all of the uh, all of the national guard forces, every state has a national guard element, and you can always build on existing units to grow them and grow them and grow them. So I say all of this because you have two distinct capabilities in the respective organizations of the army and the marine corps. But when you get into land combat, which the Marines do wonderfully, I think interoperability is key. We should not have the same doctrine, but we certainly have an interoperable and mutually reinforcing doctrine mm -hmm. between the two organizations. So uh, as, a, as an, uh, I guess an add-on to this question, you know, around the same time, certainly, I think it probably begins in the 70s, continues to through the 80s and, and into the 90s, but both the Army and the Marine Corps go through this intense period of, of study, discussion, one could even say admiration of German military history, particularly the German Army's uh, combat effectiveness throughout much of World War II. And I've got several questions here. Did you see this phenomenon? If so, what was your reaction to it? Did you see merit in studying the Germans? Were there pitfalls that, um, that, that may have came you know, come up in this, in this study and in these discussions? Well, uh, yes, I did see merit in studying the, the Germans. That's, but I want to be careful to draw a line between the German army, the Wehrmacht, as opposed to the uh, leadership given by the uh, Nazi organizations mm -hmm. and uh, all of the uh, war criminal elements that entered into all of that to include elements of the German army. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what was uh, worth knowing about the Germans? 
uh, Winston Churchill said, and I believe to be true, you don't know war until you fought, fought the Germans. Uh, it goes back to uh, their Prussian roots, uh, Frederick the Great, uh, an incredible general staff that uh, lived, breathed, and fought endlessly about war and how to fight it. And even when the uh, Soviets have grown to this uh, huge continental force coming out of Asia, and the Germans are fighting on all fronts and are getting attrited heavily, if you really take a look at the the uh, final two years of the war, they are it's a fighting withdrawal inflicting heavy damage on their enemies. You might have a uh, you might have a, a German tank corps a corps. And it's down to 100 or less tanks. And they are biting off Soviet armies. Uh, Soviet armies try to attack them. Well, army means you've got a group of them. You have to understand how they could do that and the educational effort they put behind it. They understood war. And then you also had to understand the ruthlessness with which they fought mm. and the illegality and immorality with which they fought. And you have to understand that as well and stop short of it. But that doesn't mean you get infatuated uh, with them. And I've, uh, I have often thought about, should we have a real general staff or not? I think our office development system is an excellent one. And I would not take it to an emulation of the, uh, sort of the Prussian model and the German general staff. By the way, I'm not up to date as to how the Germans develop their senior officers at this point. Mm-hmm. But I do think that historically, the United States has done very well in developing its senior officers, uh, at least since the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. Did you did did you see cases of infatuation of the Germans while you were while you were serving and these discussions were were being had? No, I can't say as I did. We we did devote locations to uh, study the Germans. Uh, There's even a book published called, I think it's called German Generals Speak. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, I think, a U.S. effort to capture that, probably with the British. So we understood how they thought, uh, what they talked about. The infantry school, uh, I don't know if the Marines do it, but they always recommended the Rommel book, Infantry Attacks. Attacks, yeah. yeah. I've read that twice. I, I think Rommel was a heck of a tactician, very formidable. But the book itself, I, other than mountain fighting you know, in uh, northern Italy and Austria, I, I didn't get that much out of it. Mm-hmm. God forbid the infantry was shaking its boots. <laughs> but I did try. Yeah, so yeah. Put it that way. Yeah. So, uh, but to answer your question, I didn't see necessarily an infatuation with it. I thought of a, a good, intelligent study of what made them the machine they were, the good and the bad. The bad is they became such a machine, uh, they excused a lot of their behavior sure. in homage to the machine. Yeah, and, and I'd say uh, recent decades, there's been quite a bit of research, quite a bit of publishing on the German army's hand in war crimes, the, ho- the Holocaust, to include some of the more notable, more famous German commanders, people whose books are still on various military reading lists. I've always found it interesting that, you know, you can have a commander who signed off on some order to kill, you know, civilians in reprisals for partisan attacks, someone who can do that, and then show 
total brilliance in a counterstroke or a counterattack. And as we today, people who are either in the military or involved with military professionals and professional military education, kind of walking that fine line of taking what we can and that is useful from these these people without condoning or supporting you know any of the any of the bad stuff they've done. And I think it's I think we see this a little bit with studying the Confederate generals today in the United States. My, my understanding, and I only have a few data points to, to make this conclusion, there's, there's much less interest today, I think, at the armed forces, certainly the army, studying what the Confederates did because of the context I think we're in. You know, there's the pulling down of the statues, there's renaming of various high schools and, and, and whatnot. I think there is a, you, you can go too far to say there's nothing worth studying from, you know, th- that organization, the, the Confederate army. Uh, and throwing really the baby out with the bathwater. So uh, I'm just curious to get your reaction on on any of that. Well, I would say I, I think it's worthwhile to study how the Confederate leadership fought that war. Uh, they had some uh, great operational campaigns. I would say that Lee was a master at the operational level of war. Mm-hmm. I think is the critical level of war for the military person. The strategic level is also important, but policy leaders, national leaders, are involved with that and have to consider many things. But in terms of uh, campaigns, I think it's worthwhile to see how they did it, just like a Napoleonic campaign is very worthwhile. I mean, Napoleon was a military genius. He was a genius in other ways. And to study, uh, want to study war, not a bad starting place. Sure. But getting back to the Confederates, they were also very good at the tactical level. So uh, both at the operational level and the tactical level, I think we would be remiss if we didn't see how they pulled off, in several cases, uh, victory from what seemed to be certain defeat. Sure. Uh, that doesn't mean you admire everything about them, right. or you see right. a justification in the war that you wave the Confederate flag because of the glory of their arms. But uh, avoiding learning? No. Condoning evil? No. You, I think you can do the I think you can learn and avoid justifying what they did totally. That's true for the Germans, getting back to what you said. How could a commander like Kesserlin, for all intents and purposes, a decent man, how can you uh, praise him for his brilliance and excuse him his savagery and illegality in uh, what you cited, reprisals on a ratio of a hundred to one mm-hmm. or whatever they said. Kill a hundred citizens for every German that's killed, which he did uh, in Naples, I believe it was. And other sins like that. Kesserling is probably one of the, the better morally uh, straight German commanders. And, and how could you not know that you were slaughtering uh, Jews as you went through Poland and that you had special troops whose sole purpose was to execute by the score, by the hundreds, by the thousands? How could you know that wasn't there and continue to serve that? So, but you see the, uh, it's too easy to fall into your own cultural times and say, a pox upon these people. They did everything evil and bad. Lee, uh, I think was an honorable man. Jackson was an honorable man. Did they own slaves? Yes. Is that dishonorable? Yes. But that does mean that there was nothing to be learned from them. No, it doesn't mean that. Right. Yeah. And I, I often, I guess, use the, the analogy. It's, it's like 
a doctor who's fascinated or, or interested in or whose specialty is, is cancer, right? Cancer is a, a terrible thing, but studying it and wanting to understand it for the benefit of other people is a good thing. So if studying the Germans, studying the Confederates, and again, not condoning what they've done, not, not supporting the ideologies that motivated them will yeah. benefit saving lives, uh, soldiers, Marines, civilians, whomever going forward. Well, hell, we, we should, should study them. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we should also add, uh, study your enemies. I think we should know everything we can about how the Chinese operate both for sure. in a military sense and in a political sense. That's a pretty rough uh, area. Korea, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean you honor them by studying them. Just uh, see what, what their plans are, how they think about things, and so on. Same with the Russians. The Russians remain the Russians. A mm -hmm. uh, weakened nation, not certainly the empire they once were, not the power they once were, but they still have nuclear weapons. Right. Uh, and they have developed very intricate ways of using what conventional forces they do have that threaten us. By the way, uh, before we leave the question of studying general staffs, the historic imperial Russian staff, particularly uh, their uh, actions in Asia Minor uh, or uh, in the vicinity of the Black Sea are, are very worthwhile to take under study. Yeah, no, that, it's fascinating stuff. Jim, I'd like to move now towards your time at SAMS, your work in writing the uh, FM 100-5 you were appointed director of the prestigious School of Advanced Military Studies, SAMS. How did this assignment come about? What was your experience at SAMS like? The uh, chief of staff of the Army in, uh, at the end of the uh, first Gulf War, this is circa 1991, was uh, General Gordon Sullivan. And Sullivan had been the deputy commandant of the Command General Staff College at Leavenworth, Kansas. At that particular time, I had I met him because I was assigned to the School of Advanced Military Studies as an operational fellow. It was a war college assignment. Instead of going to the standard war colleges, uh, myself and seven other officers of uh, comparable rank were assigned to the school, which is ostensibly focused on the development of uh, senior captains, junior majors for the operational level war. Think campaigns, major campaigns. So Sullivan was there as a one-star when I showed up as a student and we got to know each other. And I'm working in uh, at the end of the Gulf War for uh, General Galvin. And the Army and General Sullivan especially has decided it needs to update its doctrine. The Soviet Union is falling apart. We have other threats that are emerging. We haven't forgotten the Russian threat, but he has decided that it's time to redo the doctrine. He writes to General Galvin or talks to him. I think it was actually a, a back channel, but I'm not sure. But he says, can you release McDonough to take over the directorship of SAMS? And he's got it in mind, I believe. And he's also going to help us with the doctrine. And of course, uh, General Galvin says, yes, he could have said no and would have been accepted. But I think Galvin's thinking of needs of the military the needs of the chief of staff and probably my own future. And he says, go. So it's, I think, two days after the war is over, I'm dispatched back to SAM. Now, not as a fellow, but as the director. This is uh, three years after I was an operational fellow there. So I've known, I've known SAMs. I've 
great respect for it. I knew Huba Vastasega, General Huba Vastasega, who was the founder of SAMS, the first director, and who also wrote the 1983 and 1987 uh, versions of Field Manual 100-5. That was the last manual we had before I'm dispatched back to take up SAMS and, and take up that job of writing the doctrine. So you were you were tasked with this pretty big job, re- rewriting the Army's central warfighting doctrine. What was your experiences like writing about it? What, what sort of research did you do? Was it a collaborative process? If you could just walk us through you know, re- revising this, this central piece of doctrine. Well, I was confident going in. So I, I had, uh, by this point, you know, I've been in the Army active duty since 1969. It's now 1991, so I have over 20 years in, and I have, uh, I'm a voracious reader, and I've really taken my uh, my sense of obligation to really understand the profession to heart for all of those years, and I've been reading endlessly on and try to think about it. So I'm competent, and I'm also experienced in the bureaucratic ways of the Army, and I know you're going to have to watch your step uh, if you're going to be effective in a positive way going in. And I also understand it's not my doctrine. It's uh, ostensibly authored by the chief of staff of the army. He signs it, but it's the army's doctrine. And not only will the US Army and the Marine Corps take a look at that, but virtually all of our allies and all of our enemies will as well. So the idea is get it right. It's not a short process. It was a three-year process, and I anticipated that going in. There had been some work afoot when I arrived. I took a quick look at it. I thought it was amateurish, quite frankly. It had not risen at a very high level yet, so you had a lot of uh, self-proclaimed experts who were dabbling in it and some senior oversight, but nothing formal had really moved forward by the spring of 91. A new chief of staff, it's going to be his baby. And then shortly thereafter, General Freddie Franks, who did a marvelous job in the first Gulf War as the uh, Corps commander in the Gulf, he's appointed by the chief of staff, the uh, commanding general of training and doctrine command, four-star general. So you have now two real heavyweights, Warden Sullivan, chief of staff, Fred Franks, commander of the training and doctrine command, and they're not taking this on as a casual mission, and I know it. So I know General Franks a bit and have great respect for him. He lost his leg in Vietnam, survived that, and was able to continue to advance in the Army as a maneuver officer, so an armor officer, just a tremendous guy, had been an English instructor at West Point while we were up there as a cadet. So you know these people, I don't know them intimately, but I know them and they know me. And they would have asked me if they didn't have some confidence. Other heavyweights are showing up too. Uh, Major General, then Major General Wes Clark, is appointed the Army's Chief of Doctrine. Right away, that could breed uh, bureaucratic competition. Why would a colonel in Leavenworth, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, uh, be given the tasking to draft the Central Warfighting Doctrine when you have a Major General at Fort Monroe in Virginia working right with General Franks? Responsible for all doctrine, not be given that task. Mm-hmm. Work for 
Clark. I actually worked for a brigadier general at Fort Leavenworth, who then worked for a three-star general at Fort Leavenworth. But both of them know that you've got two four-stars that are concerned about this. So A lot, a lot of stars involved. Right. Uh, I'm given a team. And so you learn many things. The uh, chief of personnel for the U.S. Army, a three-star general, calls me one day and says, uh, we want you to pick what you think would be a first-rate team. So I'm thinking, they want me to pick? This is a personnel chief. So I have some names. And uh, I make my first blunder by getting those names, giving those names. And and I get them. (laughs) And shortly after... I get them. And this happens in a matter of, I think, 10 days, something like that. I don't get them physically. I got the names and they got their orders. I get a call from a three-star general who's the senior commander of Leavenworth. He says, essentially, although he didn't use these particular, who the hell do you think you are? Don't you realize that that officer was due to come to me and I've been trying to get him here for months and now he's going to you? I'm thinking, oh man, I should have coordinated yeah, 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 a little bit before I answered the uh that's fair. But you see the importance given to this is, again, unfortunately, that three-star moved on quickly. And another one came in who was more understanding mm-hmm. of who was really involved in this effort. Sure. Did you find any inspiration or ideas from what had been happening in the Marine Corps with the writing of their FMFM1 war fighting and the discussions there? Did that experience and and the debates there influence or affect you in any way while you were drafting the FM? Uh, The answer is yes, but not in a major way, but there's a bigger answer to your question. I knew the Marine Corps' adherence to doctrine and its innovativeness with doctrine and its boldness with doctrine, particularly uh, most dramatically the development of amphibious warfare doctrine. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the pre-war periods, the interwar periods, and then certainly in World War II itself. I'm also aware of the U.S. Army's involvement with amphibious operations. Yeah. But I was admiring of the moral courage it had taken leaders in the Marine Corps to step out and develop what was so vital for our successes in World War II. I also knew other things about the Marines' adherence to doctrine and its boldness in uh, stepping out. And that was inspirational to me. Don't be timid about this. The world has changed. What we don't want is a uh, modest, you know, marginal change to a doctrine. My God, the, uh, our major foe had fallen apart, the Soviet Union. Were we to write another doctrine that focused on how we're going to fight the Soviet Union? No. Mm-hmm. But should we abandon concepts of conventional warfare? No. And so it opened up thinking, but it wasn't all my thinking. Uh, Sullivan and Franks were very good about a clarion call for input from the existing army leadership, from rank and file, from retired leadership. Part of my writing to them was to put out articles that call for input. Mm. Early on, uh, General Franks directed draft something we published in Military Review that announces we're going to do a new doctrine and open the doors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We did that. He did it. And General Sullivan did it. Sullivan himself would handle this, I think, in a magnificent way. First of all, he's showing great respect to General Franks, essentially his subordinate, but a equal four-star ability and a very competent and uh, an energetic man. Franks, both of them, in fact. But they are, in fact, 
it's generating discussion and uh, they're modulating in such a way that it's free and open and there and no input is intimidated by their overseeing of what's going on. So specifically, when General Franks would call a senior level meeting, it would be essentially his army staff, certainly uh, training and doctrine command, and then usually the branch chiefs. He would have mostly generals there from four star down, probably maybe a couple of one stars, and then maybe one or two or three colonels, mm -hmm. I being one of the colonels. The other colonels, uh, either from uh, General Clark's training and uh, doctrine staff, and the other colonel being a personal, the military assistant to Sullivan. But instead of uh, Franks or Sullivan saying, here's where we are on the doctrine, he would do something like, Colonel McDonough, please brief us on where we are on the doctrine. So I would do that. I mean, briefly, it wouldn't be long drawn out. And then he'd say uh, to his assembled senior officer, well, what do you think? Is that the right way to go? He didn't say, here's where I say we are, this colonel over here is telling you where we are. So then he's saying, really, well, what do you think? Does the colonel have it, uh, has he captured our input so far? Mm -hmm. Put it in neutral ways where people could speak out. And then if they wanted, the technique was that I noted my interpretation. Let's say the, uh, the chief of logistics or combat service support didn't like the way the logistics picture was going. He wouldn't say, well, General Sullivan, why are you doing it that way? Couldn't say that, you say. He would say, well, Colonel McDonough, what gave you that bright idea? Colonel <laughs> <laughs> McDonough said, well, sir. <laughs> I'm trying to explain it. Right. And then uh, General Sullivan, General Frank, Franks, who did a good job, I think, of giving me top cover, would, could modulate their tone in the answer. And from that, it kept input open and the ability to modulate the development as we went through it. But it didn't surrender to anybody right of place. It's a fascinating way to handle the process of reworking this, this seminal document. Were there, I'm curious to know, Jim, were there any ideas or sections, concepts that you really wish had made it in to the FM that, that didn't, or things that were, they were trimmed down, they were, they were altered. Understanding that this is the Army's doctrine, not Colonel McDonough's, but you know, were there things that, that you thought, man, I really wish this were Army doctrine? There is a, there's a study of how the process went, by the way, written by a guy named Romju, Official Military History Study, R-O-M-J-U-E. And it's, I can't remember the exact title, but it's essentially the writing of Field Manual 100-5 uh, circa 1993. That's the year it was published. I have a copy. I can look at it and give you the title. But that guy captured it really well. Mm. The bureaucratic infighting, quite frankly, the real fighting at a much smaller level between my effort at Fort Leavenworth and General Clark's efforts at Fort Monroe, the chief of doctrine versus the director of SAMS, mm -hmm. two star versus one star. He's got, got place, he's proximity to General Franks, and he's got rank, and you know he's a well-respected guy. So sure. Went on to make four stars. But to answer your question, I'm very pleased with the outcome, hmm. and I think the things that were edited out of final version were minor changes that I had no uh, great sense of loss with. In fact, in some 
in retrospect, now I'm glad that was edited out. It, it really didn't stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. But most of the central principles or tenets, as we call them, remained intact and I think strengthened. I thought the wording made it clear this is a fighting doctrine. Mm -hmm. But it also, I thought, was trend breaking by saying there are also operations other than war mm -hmm. and the army must do them well. In fact, it was given an acronym right off the bat, which is a sign of adoption. And then the word has changed, but just slightly. The way this came about, and I give credit to Joe Franks about it, as we were going through draft after draft and meeting after meeting, there's one moment where I'm meeting with General Franks. I don't think General Clark is present. Two other people are present. And pretty much is the usual call, well, where are we now? And I said, well, sir, we've come to this point where we are getting into uh, things that really aren't quite warfare, but they, they, we do them so much in the Army, we have to talk about them and enter into our operational doctrine. We've got to be able to do these things for an mm -hmm. operation. And we talked about that, and he said, well, what do you call it? And I say, uh, so I'm really not sure, because uh, you see, there is war and there's not war. Both are important. But the fact of the matter is there's operations in war, and there are operations other than war. And John Frank said, well, why don't you call it that? <laughs> Eureka. Wow. So that's it. Now, I just yesterday read a, a recent article in The Atlantic by Mark Bowman, and uh, he uses the current term. Now, this was published in 93, so we're now uh, 28 years later. It goes like this, uh, competitions other than war. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, I remember operations other than war. Then it was Mutwa. I think someone had someone thought, let's add military operations. Yeah, right. uh, which I feel is a bit redundant. But yeah, now competition and competing—that's the—that's part of the the lingo these days. Right, but it's the same concept. There's yeah, war and there's not war. You see, right. back to that discussion. I would say so. It's. I think it stood the test of time, even though it's been re rewritten. Sure. I don't think it's been a seminal departure, which was published in 93, but you're now talking to a prideful, overly arrogant author <laughs> uh, who's not really the author, only the drafter. Sure, the, sure. Do you recall the reception the Army and maybe even the larger DOD gave to the FM you know, when it was released? How, how did people receive it? I think it was uh, quite an achievement for the chief of staff and for General Franks. And I think they were very proud of it. And uh, I think that was obvious. And I think, therefore, even though there was some dubiousness about do we really need a new doctrine, do we really need new terms, I think they recognize this is it. This is the doctrine we got. For people outside the Army, it's when you hang out your doctrine, just getting back to the idea of church doctrine, whoa. That's a big attention getter. We had lots of emulations of it by different nations, I think even by other services. Uh, you'd be the expert on how well the Marine Corps noticed it and uh, considered it and developed its own doctrine. But to answer your question, I think uh, was widespread acceptance officially. And then I think the, uh, the dubiousness or the skepticisms, I think faded over time mm -hmm. pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Jim, I'd like to talk about your two other books, and we'll start first with The Defense of Hill 781. So what lessons might that book hold for today's American Ground Forces, Marines, Army, 
specifically where it comes to regaining proficiency in, in what the army and I think Marine Corps is calling large scale combat operations, looking really at the battalion level and, and below what, what does Hill 781 hold for us? Well, 781 came out of a, a couple of things, but the major immediate driver was lessons learned at the National Training Center. One of the outcomes of the disaster after Vietnam was getting that professional edge at the tactical level. So uh, the NTC focused mostly on battalion, a little bit on brigade, but mostly at battalion. It was mechanized warfare. And since the National Training Center is in the Mojave Desert, it was mechanized warfare in the desert. So by the early 1980s, I started getting exposed to the National Training Center, working with the 2nd Armored Division out of Fort Hood. And I uh, really take over command in 1984, and uh, I get dispatched to Europe with my battalion on a reporter exercise. And by the time I come back from that, it's time to get ready for exposure to the National Training Center. I will do that, first of all, as a, even before I go to uh, reporter as a brigade XO, rotation. First one with the Bradley Infantry fighting vehicle and the M1 tank. So big experiences. The whole army is looking at that. And then as a battalion commander, twice more. Once under my own brigade commander, and then secondly, under the other brigade commander. And why I got, you know, the privilege of three, I don't know. But certainly the first thing you learn out there is all the lessons you need to learn. The other thing that grows out of it is my respect for an old uh, Boer War tactical handbook done in a jocular fashion with a deadly message, though, which is uh, get it right or you get killed. Right. <laughs> so I, uh, I, when I was an operational fellow at the School of Advanced Military Studies, fresh out of battalion command with uh, these three full rotations and several other reconnaissance and official visits to the National Training Center, I have the uh, time to study and reflect, and I write Defense of Hill 781. What do you get from it? The complexity of modern warfare, mechanized warfare, uh, the ability to put it together the right way and the potential of putting it together the wrong way, how it takes training, attention to detail, everything down to the difficulty of communications and the ease of misinterpretation. I have a scene in 781, which is I actually experienced at the National Training Center, where I uh, we have to penetrate a tough defensive position, and I give the mission to a company. Company commander is a good, aggressive company commander. His real job is to get his company through the uh, obstacle to the front of this unit and let me know, and then I'm piling on with all the rest of the mechanized force we have. And when you take a mixture, and I have two tank companies attached to me, so when you have all of that mechanized firepower, I mean, it, it's formidable stuff, if it can penetrate. Well, he gets so intensely involved that he's losing vehicles, he's losing men, notionally, of course, but with immediate effect on the battlefield, and he's down to himself in a handful, and he's cutting wire, concertina wire himself. And he gets through and he, uh, in his exuberance, and I'm waiting and I'm like, where are you? How are you? He says, I'm through, I'm through the wire. He means he's through the wire. Well, that's one person. I commit the battalion (laughs) and boom, they get destroyed at the uh, front end of the obstacle. So you see how you can confuse your communications. I should ask him, 
oh, <laughs> do you mean you're through the wire or do you mean the whole company's through the wire and, and the obstacle is now clear? Right. Oh, I mean, I'm through the wire. I might've hesitated. The you as in you, Captain, or you as in the general, you know, the general you, the, the, yeah. the, the unit uh, as a whole. A, a, a cohesive fighting unit. Is sure. That's no, there was a, it was a lot of fun writing it because I, uh, I poked fun at the things that always irritated me yeah. while I got the tactical points. I, I opened the book where the, uh, the protagonist, who happens to be an airborne ranger commander, which I later become, <clears throat> is so arrogant that he takes a dare that he can eat three meals ready to eat in one day and survive, and he dies. <laughs> he's dead by the end of the first page and ends up in purgatory yeah. where he's got to fight his way out. <laughs> What, what lessons of the book do you think might not apply, given our understanding of, of what the 21st century environment poses, how, how technology has advanced, the widespread use of drones and, and, and other pieces of equipment? Where might the book not fall short, but just not have application to where? where well, it's the right question. And uh, obviously, the way I describe the book, you, when you're making tactical decisions, you're doing so with great lacks of knowledge on what's really going on. So, you know, you could see what human beings could see on the ground at that level, and that's about it. And your scouts might be able to tell you something, and you might be able to peek over a ridgeline and see something, but far, far less than uh, the uh, cyber penetrations, the drone overhead with a uh, magnificent view with perfect uh, digitary locations, so you could make immediate calls for fire and could see if it's clear or if any children were in the area and so on. However, uh, there's a sign to me that says, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. There's always uncertainty. Uh, there's always needs for uh, human observation and interpretation and communication. So although the technical means have vastly surpassed where we were at the time of the writing of 19, middle 1980s. I still think, as I do in virtually everything, you can't forget the basics, the uh, clear orders, command presence, flexibility, the subordinates, prioritization, quick adaptation and modification of plans, all of that, the difficulty of communication. And back to that, in the in Defense of Hill 781, I try several times to uh, describe in detail how confusing it is to be talking on multiple radios with multiple echelons at the same time, under fire, with fatigue, and keep it straight. And it is difficult. I don't think it's gotten much easier. Uh, it sounds like a terribly hard task, right? And you're, you're doing this with, and I understand that while you're writing about these or the experiences are based on your time at the NTC and, and related training areas. You're still training for life and death situations, right? right? So you're talking to these folks, you're trying to coordinate different assets. And then, you know, a company commander gets on the, the net and says, Hey, you know, half the company's destroyed. And you're going, all right, now I've got to adjust to that. It's got to be pretty, pretty challenging. Both you and uh, Daniel Bolger, author of Dragons at War, clearly, I, I think is fair to say, have been affected by your experience at the, the National Training Center. Um, 
how do you evaluate the NTC? I think it's the Joint Rotational Training Center and Related Combat Training Center unit experiences today to the degree you can. How, how do you evaluate experiences there now compared to when you went through? Do you keep a, a pulse or a finger? Well, on? I, I ended up going to, I think, all of the Army's uh, training centers that replicated for various types of forces the NTC. The NTC was the biggest most heavily invested in, but we then developed one for light forces. And then we had similar training locations in Europe mm-hmm. uh, at the front of the Cold War and then after the Cold War. And I've gone through rotations at all of those places. So I think it's, uh, you know, my sport uh, growing up was boxing and I had a number of bouts. It wasn't just a casual involvement. And the way you tuned up for fighters, you sparred and you wanted to spar against good competition that didn't give you any slack because your opponent's not going to give you any slack. So I equate the two experiences. These were great training opportunities. Getting back to boxing, if you take a hard look at 100-5 and uh, pick up on the subtleties, always my guiding light on warfare, where I don't think it's changed a lot, is there's three things that uh, you got to do and do well. They are the ability to move, the ability to hit and the ability to protect. Sound like boxing? Mm-hmm, move, mm-hmm. hit, protect. Move, hit, protect. Sometimes you're on defense, sometimes you're on offense, but every element has the shadow of the other element in it. So when you're on defense, you're also offensively probing and poking. Uh, you're always ready to move and shift. Mm-hmm. A lot of other things come to play, of course, but if you want to find the three central thrusts, and that's a good word for it, move, hit, protect. What do you do at these training locations? You move, hit, protect. Mm-hmm. Yes, you logistics, please supply stuff, you communicate, you develop intelligence, but the way you use those things to move, hit, protect. So that's what they offered you. And then, of course, the simplest innovation of all, but so so effective, the after action review. Mm-hmm. Just doing it without getting introspective afterwards and saying, well, what did I learn from that? What did I do right? What did I do wrong? What seems to be the formula to get it right? All of these things are driven home by the very uh, psychological pressure that you're put under helps you remember mm-hmm. what you should and yeah. how to get it right. Of your three books, I think the, the least best known is your historical novel, The Limits of Glory. And that's on the events leading up to and including the Battle of Waterloo. Some people have compared this book to Shiraz Killer Angels on Gettysburg. Uh, There's been a lot of scholarship on Waterloo since your book came out, I think in 1991, the 200th anniversary of the battle. How well do you think your book has held up in in light of this? And if you had to write it again, what might you change and why? Well, I wrote that a historical novel, but I tried to make it as historically accurate as I could. The only novel part of it was the arrogance of pretending that I knew what the principal was thinking. Mm. Even when I used words, I tried to find something that in English at least approximated what was known to have been said. You know, a letter written, someone on the scene citing it. So I'm just trying to clarify, I tried to write as accurate a novel. A novel allows you to go in the direction you want to go and emphasize that what you do, and also to give psychological insight to the personalities. So to answer the last part of your question, I would not change word because I think I got it about right. And I know that's an arrogant statement in and of itself. I think I did fairness to the principles I talked about uh, 
I could go back to some of them. Well, one of them I never intended to write about. That's Lady Magdalene, who is the wife of Wellington's chief of staff. But in terms of her capturing the poignancy of the losses at Waterloo and in all war, there's probably no better statement than what she put in her diary, which I was fortunate enough to discover before I went to print and was so touched by it, I rewrote the book to enter her into the play. But in regard to the fact that there have been several books written, well, before I started writing it, I asked myself, do I really want to write a book on Waterloo? Everyone, there's got to be a lot of books written on Waterloo. Yeah. There were. Uh, I can't remember the... Uh, figure, but it was in the tens of thousands, if you consider it all languages. So the fact that a few more have been written, yes, they want covered some things that haven't been written, but a lot was captured in the uh, previous tens of thousands. Sure. Uh, I didn't read all of them, of course, but I did try to read some of the more central works. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier in this interview, I remember I was military assistant to the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, and he would use that to make his policy points to visiting heads of state. Well, I went with him to that battlefield many times and yeah. walked it dozens of times, and I, I think I know it. But whether or not it's a, uh, you know, the the uh, best book ever written on Waterloo, I don't know. But there's not too many fictional works on Waterloo. Mm-hmm. Victor Hugo did a little bit of that, and Les Mis- Miserables got some of it badly wrong, and I fell sway to one of those, the idea of the sunken road. Mm-hmm. It actually probably was not a sunken road there. But if you go to the museum they now have at Waterloo, they actually have a replica of a, of a horse. And the significance of that is the pileup of the horses in the sunken road, which, of course, didn't exist. Wow. So if you wow. believe in modern books, it didn't exist. Yeah. If you had a third book in you about your army experiences, what do you think it would be on? It would be a fourth book, actually. So there's three, uh, platoon leader, Defense of Hill 781 and then uh, Limits of Glory. But the one I considered for a while would have been a takeoff on the sand pebbles, and it would have been on Korea. Mm. So the experience in Korea, which I saw as a very positive military experience, if you remember the movie The uh, Sand Pebbles, based on a novel, mm-hmm. The Sand Pebbles, Steve McQueen, and it's the co-option of the U.S. Navy by the Chinese, and all of the uh, tragedy that comes out of that. So my one observation that was not as right on the upside in Korea was the degree to which corruption had entered the uh, ranks of the military through somewhat of a co-option by the Korean influence on supporting us. Everything from PXs to drugs, of course, to prostitution, uh, which was widespread, if not in the camps, just adjacent to the camps. And uh, I thought if I undertook that and got it about right, it'd be an interesting story. It wouldn't be a glorious story, but it'd be interesting. But I, I dismissed it as, uh, you know, my real focus has been military and military operations and actions, how to improve upon them, things like that, some historical reflectiveness, human psychology. Mm-hmm. And then finally, my own skill level as a novelist, uh, I'm not sure uh, I would have done very much good with it, but I did consider it. Yeah, it, it sounds fascinating. And I may have asked the, the question poorly. I was, I was looking at if you, if you had to write another book that was written on 
your experiences. So platoon leader, of course, is your time as a platoon leader in Vietnam, Hill 871. It is taking experiences from uh, your rotations to the NTC and elsewhere. If you were to write another book about your career or some aspect thereof, what do you think it would, it would be on? Or, I mean, have you thought about doing an autobiography about your, your military career or anything like that? There is actually, I have written a fourth book on my career, but I've not been able to get it published. It's my experiences in R- Rwanda during the genocide. Oh, wow. I wrote that as a novel too. Yeah. Uh, and I wrote as a novel because that is such a complex story. And there is such a thin historical record of it. And then finally, there are nothing but contending historical records. Every author has a different view mm. of uh, what happened and who was to blame. Mm-hmm. But I have, I've written that and yeah. I fielded a bit with no success. It's a major novel. I titled it The Stones Cried Out. And uh, it traces the, it, it invents a fictional country, uh, but it sounds and looks like Rwanda mm-hmm. with fictional names, but each of the names corresponds to an actual player. Yeah. One of the fictional names is my own. Uh, I show up in R- Rwanda in the summer of 1994. Most of the genocide is over, but not quite. Cholera has struck and the civil war is still going on, although it's in its waning days. I think I do a credible job of laying out what happened and who did what to whom. But of course, it's all fiction. Yeah. And I have to keep it that way or uh, I will get endless liable suits. <laughs> so he's really talking about me. I see right. what he's doing. But right. of course, it's just fiction. I well, say this for your podcast. <laughs> I, hope, I hope it does get picked up. It sounds like a fascinating book. And that serves as a good pivot point to talk about your time as the commanding officer of the 173rd Airborne Brigade. So this is your last command assignment. It's the same unit you served with in Vietnam. You know, what feelings were you experiencing? What thoughts were going through your head when you took command of the brigade? Well, thanks for that question. To begin with, to be technically accurate, it's not called a 173rd Airborne Brigade immediately. That's a, it takes an official act of reflagging. Mm. But I am there at the inception. That is to say, I'm to form the brigade, make it an operational brigade virtually immediately, mm-hmm. and then petition for it to get reflagged to 173, ah, okay. which I successfully do. But unfortunately, at that, the actual reflagging takes place after I've departed. Ah, <laughs> I'm okay. out of command. But, but to come back to your question, Look, I always saw it as the 173rd Air War Brigade. It did become the 173rd in name. Uh, and it was a thrill that I delighted in. I had tremendous respect for the 173rd Airborne Brigade in Vietnam. And I have tremendous respect for the 173rd Airborne Brigade in present day, from the time we started it to where it is now. Yeah. Well, I couldn't have been happier. I will say this, it was a shock to the uh, armor-heavy mechanized forces that had existed in Europe for uh, some 50 years, half a century. And remember, we're standing them down by uh, the point I take command, much of it. I take command at the, I actually show up in late December, or just before Christmas, excuse me, of 1993. I'm uh, lifted from Leavenworth and I'm back out. And then I formally uh, get it started in January of 94. And within six months, we're in Rwanda Mm -hmm. in the midst of a humanitarian crisis, civil war, and epidemic. 
it's probably the worst uh, genocide in the last half of the 20th century. Incredible. Uh, approximately a million people, officially it's described as 800,000, but I think a million is probably fair genocidal rate in 100 days. Uh, do the math on that. You're pumping people off at about 10,000 a day. It's, it's, and it's, it's usually done up close and personal by hand, often with machete. And then you have an epidemic. The cholera was so bad when the elements of the brigade first showed up in Goma Zaire, just over the border, and the refugee camp there, about 140,000 when we arrived. The death rate in that camp the first day was 5,000. One day, one camp. There were 20 camps like this. Uh, the scene was, there's this beautiful lake, Kivu, at Goma, K-I-V-U, and the refugees have poured in hard lava rock. They can't bury him, so they're throwing him in the lake. And as the American troops arrive in country, there are the living standing in the lake next to the dead, drinking the water. They're going to be dead within 48 hours, 72 hours. And then, of course, you've got the remnants of a vicious civil war between the uh, Rwandan army, reinforced by, I can't say reinforced, but certainly supported by a couple of European countries, specifically uh, the Belgians and the French. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's still going on. So pretty, uh, pretty hoary time. What was it like to step into the middle of this? Uh, it was imposing. Uh, I will tell you this, with all that we've talked about, the worst thing I've ever seen in my life is Rwanda. Mm. When uh, you go into Rwanda itself, noteworthy is you couldn't see a living thing. Thing, The uh, people were dead. You can't see people. There are people out there who will find them. But the visual is the only people here are dead. The livestock is dead. The crops are dead. It's death. It's a whole country. Not a big country. But remember, I'm saying there's dead everywhere. The rivers are choked with corpses. They're forming log jams. Or what other would be log jams? They're not log jams. They're corpse jams. And then, of course, I've described the refugee camp. So how do you explain this? How do people do this to each other? It's difficult to explain. I attempt to do that in the manuscript I wrote, but it's not a, an attractive story. A lot of failures in this one. The United States did react finally, but not to the genocide. It was the cholera, and it was only came about when CNN got into Goma and started filming the cholera deaths there. That it was recognized, oh, this is a humanitarian crisis. You may remember our own State Department refused to identify it as a genocide. Hmm. Uh, we were using uh, terms that uh, it's sort of like a genocide, but it's really not. Because if you recognize a genocide under ish- international laws, you have an obligation to react to it. So you just have to read the record. It's appalling. The pretenses we went through to disavow what was actually happening there. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as always, it's hurry up and get in there and do something about it. What? What do you want me to do about it? Let me give you one insight. My orders were every which way from Sunday. 
as we were told to deploy out of uh, Northern Italy. In fact, literally I was in uh, Germany when I get the warning order, be prepared to move into uh, Rwanda. My first job is to uh, gather the brigade and get myself back to Italy to organize for departure. And then we go on with, well, what do I do? And what do I do if I see someone killing somebody else? What do I do if I see this? What about the warring parties? Intelligence was bad. I was told there were no mines. I asked an explicit question. I was told there were no mines in. Yeah, there were 50,000 mines in. I asked other questions. At one point was told I was not to deploy on the aircraft, U.S. Air Force aircraft, with arms, with armed weapons, because we haven't declared the underlying conditions or the authorizations. Or I was told not to bring more than a basic load with me. At one point, was even told not to bring ammunition with me, mm. which I would not abide by. We went in with arms to protect ourselves and nothing else. But to come to the point I want to make is I kept asking for clarification of orders. On, on a C-141 flying over the Sahara en route from Aviano, Italy into Kigali, I got called into the cockpit by the pilot. Somebody on the ground was trying to reach me. And i don't not quite sure where, nor I'm quite sure who I was talking to because of the uh, static problem. Again, modern age, but its communications are always a challenge. After we give up trying to identify voices, locations, I'm just trying to get the essence of the message. And it keeps breaking out. We're getting lost in static. And I keep saying, say again, say again. And I know we're talking about my orders, my mission. And I finally get these three words, you know, static break, static, stop, they're dying. Stop the dying. Okay, that's a mission. I'll see what I can do with that. So you go into Goma Zaire and you got 5,000 dead in one day. You tell the citizens or refugees, boil your water. You tell them, bury the dead. We can't bury the dead. Lava rock, we throw them in a lake. No, don't throw them in a lake. So we finally get in bulldozers and we, and it's gruesome, you pick up hundreds of dead bodies and bulldozers, put them in a truck, and you cart them off to a place where you can bury them. And then you compel is too strong a, a word, but you strongly encourage the refugees to boil their water. And within a matter of days, you bring it down from 5,000 a day to 400 a day. And in Rwanda, you prioritize what needs to come in. Shelter. I wouldn't put that first, but because at first it didn't look like anybody was alive there, but there were people alive there. Uh, so you bring in shelter and then you bring in medicines because people are sick and dying. Then you bring in food. Then you bring in the uh, wherewithal to restart an economy. You, I mean, the infrastructure was destroyed. No communications, no power. So bit by bit, working out of the Kigali terminal, which has been put out of operation, badly damaged by fighting at the airport. You're trying to get together and bring in aircraft. Uh, we go from uh, almost no aircraft able to get in in a matter of a week or 10 days to 40, 50 aircraft a day coming in. 
everything from uh, C5As to the Soviet e equivalent, largest uh, transport vehicle uh, or air transport in the world at the time. So you, you learn a lot and you learn things, you apply the things you've learned over the years now to a different condition. Technically, this is an operation other than war. Well, who drafted the doctrine on operations other than war? Yeah. Would you say, was this the toughest operation you carried out? I cannot say it was the toughest. It was the most gruesome, most difficult, mm -hmm. most shocking, most revolting. Mm -hmm. Just uh, what you see and then the enormity. Uh, there was one moment when uh, I have a, a couple of soldiers. They're trying to uh, purify water and they're clearing some earth. And they come across the odd cover, thinly covered with dirt, the body of a young girl. Both her arms and her legs had been amputated before she'd been killed. Uh, multiply that times a million. Whole churches, people who had fled to churches for protection, the whole churches burned down around them. And anyone survived machine gunned after that. What, what you've been describing just sounds apocalyptic. <laughs> it sounds like just, it, it staggers the imagination. It's, it's hard to believe, but yeah. it was happening. And you mentioned that, if I heard you correctly, the brigade gets to Rwanda as the genocide is, is winding down, but it's still happening. They're still killing each other. Yes. Yeah. It's um, again, it, it staggers the, the imagination after Rwanda, the brigade deploys to the Balkans. Could you talk about those experiences, what you were there for and you know, your, your involvement in, uh, in events? Well, to answer your question on Bosnia in the, book I wrote or the manuscript I've written on Rwanda on the final scene I have the uh, the commander different name but it's actually me as he's pulling out he's now going back to Italy and he's got other contingents to worry about and someone hands him a paper about uh, Bosnia yeah. he says, all right let me let me take a look at that <laughs> well in 1995 the following year the uh, Serbs have moved on the Muslims in uh, Srebrenica and the UN has a peacekeeping force there, almost completely Dutch. And the Serbians seize them and hold them hostage. So uh, I get a warning order to prepare to extract the refugees. The brigade's coming along. It's, it's really been doing a lot of heavy training. It's got many contingency missions, particularly in the Balkans, but throughout a whole AO, which is extensive, much of Africa at that time, and <clears throat> I'd say most of Africa include North Africa and places in the Middle East. But anyway, we start training up for it. Before we're done, we're going to uh, run 24 rehearsals, 12 of which are live fire throughout the training areas in Germany, and also training out of Italy. And our job is going to go in and extract them. Uh, we are ready for that, we're keyed. I actually, uh, somewhere in there, I, before all this broke, I had taken leave to go home and see my family in the United States. My wife is with me in Italy, but my sons and their families, and my one son not married yet is a state. So I've taken a short leave to go back and see him. The day I arrive, I'm told, get back to Italy. So I depart and come back. But at any rate, we're ready to do it. And, and we're good to go. I think we think we've got it down. The timing on this was a matter of seconds. 
We're not a special ops group, but we're a pretty cracked unit. And I mean, give you one insight, the uh, sort of skids down, skids up to actually extract is a matter of seconds. We've got an air fleet that is extensive, a lot of helicopters. I can't go into too much detail on this. They're directly under my command. I'm the, uh, I'm the R4 commander, the Army Force commander. So all Army, both ground forces and support forces, and you have to stage yourself in. We're going to go into Serbanica, deal with an armor threat that could be activated by the Serbians and extract amidst a panicked Muslim population, a hundred UN guys. So consider all the things that have to go right, all the prior planning and the setup operations have to go on. They're all in place and we are primed to go. And as I pointed out, we think we've got it down to timing of a few second intervals on everything. Uh, we're called off. And uh, we've come to an agreement with the Serbians, we being the West, the United States especially, <clears throat> that they'll let the UN forces go. And they do. There's another place we have to go as well, which I won't go into, but it's a sort of, it's quite an operation, very delicate. In the end, when we are not executed, we're not, when we don't go in, you may remember we later find out that there has been a slaughter mass murder of over 7,000 Muslim males and boys, uh, men and boys, all male, and then the women and, and uh, children, non-male, or moved elsewhere. Uh, I think had we gone in, that massacre would not have happened. Hmm. So it wasn't as big and extensive as Rwanda, but another tragedy that I think that the proper earlier response by policymakers could have been avoided. Jim, I wanted to ask you about being stationed in, in Northern Italy. And it sounds like you are on the move quite a bit, but did you take advantage of the local sites and scenery? Did you do any battlefield tours, sightseeing, things like that? Uh, all of the above. Italy is a wonderful country. I loved Italy. Uh, it's ambiance, it's food, it's culture, architecture, countryside, scenery. We're at the uh, foot of the Alps. Uh, 45 minutes and you're uh, up in the Alps wow. drive. Uh, we did a lot of training up in the Alps. Venice was a 30-minute uh, drive from my house. You could take a train there in the same amount of time. Verona, uh, Lake Garda, one of the most picturesque lakes in the world. Also the site of the furthest advance of the U.S. Army at the uh, end of World War II. The 10th Mountain Division has a uh, 50-year celebration there in 1995. I'm honored to be there. My soldiers are honored to be there. Those 10th Mountain guys, 50 years after the war, they still look like they could take taken <laughs> <laughs> the place. Impressive, yeah, impressive bunch. I, uh, one of the thrills I get uh, get to meet Colonel uh, William Darby's driver. Wow. He's then on the day in which he is, comes out on orders to be a Brigadier General Darby. No He's kidding. killed at the town at the northern tip of Lake Garda. And his driver, who worships Darby and Darby's rangers, tells me about the moment of death. A very, very insightful, very personal description, very poignant. So all the questions you ask, I'm enjoying that. But we are on the moves. It's yeah. just exciting time. It was a wonderful way to uh, sort of capstone a career. Sure. Did you have a 
professional military education program for the brigade. I understand the brigade, it sounds like it was distributed. This unit's doing training over here. This unit's doing that. But did you have some sort of PME program for your soldiers? Well, when you're starting a brigade like that, you're trying to do many things simultaneously. So I don't think it would formally meet the requirements of a, an official program. But uh, I have more contingency you can shake a stick at. And uh, a lot of them caused me to have to put people on the ground surreptitiously, even as we're starting up. And I do that. I do it properly. You'd be very intrigued. I got to work with the, I think it was the Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean. Uh, we had to be able to get into places like Bosnia and the Balkans, uh, North Africa. I had a uh, unusual brigade. It had a uh, large company of CH-47 helicopters. To get to some of the places we had to go, I had them. Uh, it was necessary. They'd have to refuel at sea, mm-hmm. which meant you had to land on uh, U.S. Navy uh, ships and mm-hmm. refuel. You have to be qualified to do that. I invited the Marines to work with me. And they came. At one point, uh, I got asked by the U.S. Army to quit spending so much training money working with the Navy. (laughs) (laughs) You're not surprised by that, I'm sure. And the Marines. But uh, the Admiral of the uh, fleet was very good to me. I met with him on his flagship. I uh, flew on uh, aircraft carriers, uh, went to sea with them, uh, watched my own uh, helicopters train on them. So the informal answer to your question, yes, we did all of these things many times at once on the, on the job training. Like I say, people going into places where it was best known they didn't go. And we had endless missions to both everything from uh, NEO operations, evacuation of Americans, to rescue missions, and many, many, many UN locations, particularly through the Balkans, that in the event of emergency had to be evacuated quickly. Mm-hmm. We tried to get a plan for all of those things on the books and practiced a bit. It might surprise you that by February of 1994, before the genocide in Rwanda started, I figured Rwanda might blow up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had done a full-scale rehearsal of what it would like to be a neo-evacuation mm-hmm. of Rwanda. Well, by the time we got there, all the Americans were out. But we had other evacuations later on. The battalion, then the third of the 325 infantry did a Sierra Leone evacuation, neo evacuation. So you couldn't possibly have trained explicitly for each contingency mm-hmm. that we could anticipate, certainly not for those we couldn't anticipate. But uh, we were ready to go anywhere and to do it in short order. So <clears throat> we were looking to lift out the first company within 24 hours of a warning order or a frago, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we had to, the whole brigade within 72. Jim, if you had to pick one thing, what was the most rewarding thing you did in the Army? Yeah, I think the one where I was the most enjoyable for me, short of the uh, rigors of combat, but uh, a real pleasure was command of a battalion at uh, Fort Hood, armored battalion, a wonderful battalion, good people. The most poignant for me uh, was the platoon in Vietnam, a very intimate uh, relationship with all those men, tragic, tragic, of course. The most saddening was the one in Rwanda, the most adventuresome calling for the highest professional standards was the potential evacuation of the uh, UN forces 
in Bosnia. But I uh, put this all in context. I greatly enjoyed my military experience. It was the things you remember, the people you met. Mm. Jim, thank you so much for chatting with me. This has been a very enlightening conversation. I'm very excited to share it with our audience. Do you have any parting thoughts or shots for our listeners? Well, for those of them that are interested in military careers, I would encourage them to follow up on that. So a wonderful life. For those that are in and even those that get in, all should keep in mind at some point it comes to an end. You can't serve forever. It should not be your whole life. You should have a whole life. The things are going to happen afterwards. Uh, and I would encourage them to take the best of what they learn while in the military and uh, find out how well they can apply them to things after the military. Jim, thank you again. I'd love to have you back another time. I, I know there's, there's more stuff we could talk about. I really appreciate you sharing all of your experience with us and, and insights. It's, uh, it's been amazing. Damien, a pleasure to work with you. You're a very uh, insightful man yourself. Uh, you're very professional about the way you go about handling these questions, and you're very patient dealing with a fellow like me that could talk forever. <laughs> well, I, I, I love hearing you talk, so it's, it's, it's uh, not a problem at all. But thank you again, and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. Okay. Bye.